Welcome to a very special episode of Fire is Fire. My name is Jameson Wellborn, and today I'm only joined by one of my co-hosts, Dr. Brian Paul. And the reason for that is the talented RJ Ellis is actually going to be joining the panel today. Um, we somehow have been able to pull together an incredible cast of incredibly knowledgeable people into the room today to discuss one topic. And, and that topic is pigment and resin and its subsequent correlation to quality. And so, you know, without further ado and, and, and no hype necessary, I'd like to bring in the whole panel and we'll get to know them and, and go through and do some intros one by one. So everybody jump on in. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, we've tried to put together a panel of individuals that are not only highly respected in their com communities and, and schools of thought, but, but have a really interesting and differing opinion. So super excited to have you all here, man. Thank you so much for joining. Hell yeah. So because there's a lot of people, before we jump right into it, I want to do really quick intros. So if everybody could just take one to two minutes and tell us, you know, where you're based and what your areas of specialization or focus on in the last five years, um, I think that that would give everybody a point of reference so we can jump in and, and really dive deep into this combo. So starting just directly beside me, Adam, could you uh, kick it off? Yes, I'm in Northern California. My name's Adam Simpson. And um, simply Adam on Instagram, if you want to call me by my Instagram name, which it seems to be very common these days that we do that. Um, but um, I love making hash. I like to um, originally was really into trying to make it dry and because I was always making it wet. And so people kind of have uh, known me as for maybe drying hash and beaten and being able to have a hash that's not just going to turn brown instantly and that kind of um i uh, just got better and better at that still suck sometimes at that it's not always it's it's very uh, hard still to this day um and that's why the freeze dryer is so cool um to help out with that and maybe lower the amount of time that i have to dry with my hands but um other than that i just i love making rods nowadays um I want to move on to the next person. I hope I did. I need to be well. Oh, did, so did, 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 absolutely. Uh, Hold on. Without a little help. bit of blasphemy, Adam just said he likes making rosin. Do you like smoking rosin too? <laughs> yeah, like, uh, well, so it's been a long time. I've been, I've been making rosin since it first came out and uh, trying to join the wave. But now I feel like I'm fully, uh, fully involved. Um, I've been, you know, I've been making it over the years. Usually my girlfriend makes it because she's really, really good at not doing blowouts. But now I've, um, I actually did a little collab with HQ and, uh, Babushka Farms in, uh, Barcelona. It was 10 grams. We pressed it. No blowout first try. So we getting better, you know, I'm getting better at making rosin. Who's, who's up there? <laughs> Sorry, what? Uh, we can have Rick. Hold on. I just have to post this. <laughs> very true very true what's up guys my name is rick moyarty i'm uh one of, i'm the cio ceo of high north laboratories we're in toronto canada so we uh i've been growing in hash for 23 years myself and uh lately like about five six years ago my partner john he approached me with the idea of a cannabis lab knowing that the industry kind of lacks that, um, you know, specialized cannabis lab, cannabis only laboratory and people who actually are front of the industry legacy 
And uh, so he started that, brought me along. So I didn't found it. I got to join with him though. It's my partner. And now we've got probably both. I think we started, did about 6,000 samples roughly in legacy, uh, rating it and came up with an algorithm to analytically rate it uh, based on certain results, terpenes, comparative, comparative analysis. And then now in the legal market, we probably tested, I think we're just over 22,000 samples now. So we've tested and have seen a ton of different, uh, kinds of cannabis products from the absolute garbage to the, uh, fire that sure everyone on this round table is all producing themselves. So yeah, that's where I'm at. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. I appreciate you being here, Rick. Thank you very much for the invite, by the way, guys. It's awesome. Absolutely, man. I have a, I have a lab guy there. It's super valuable for this conversation. And, and, and so just appreciate you taking the time. It's hard for me to tell the order from here. Oh, you're, you're muted, Alex. You just got to hit your, your mute button. Hey everybody. Uh, Alex here, uh, Alex Siegel 94 on Instagram. Um, I'm a cannabis, uh, uh, cannabis manufacturing researcher in Northern California, um, kind of doing consulting and studying, uh, common, common cannabis manufacturing techniques and, um, kind of looking for ways to add, add value and help improve quality wherever I can. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you've got some, some really cool stuff you've been working on that I think directly relates to what we're talking about. And I think we're definitely going to touch on that later. So very excited about that. Who's up next, Brad? Brad. You're muted, Brad. Hit the mute. Nope. You're muted, bro. Hey, what up, man? My uh, first name's Brett. Everybody calls me Bird. That's my last name. I uh, cultivated a flower for about 10 years and uh, started making hash and rosin about five years ago. Learned from uh, a lot of really good hash makers to elevate my game really quickly. And uh, I like mostly producing uh, temple balls and uh, rosin. Awesome, man. I'm super stoked, Brad. I know your wealth of knowledge. Last time you were on the show, you, you, you blew all three of our minds and, and, you know, I, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say on this topic being, you know, a, a real temple boy. Love your dogs, bro. Uh, Brad, who do we have up next? We got the quiet one. The quiet one. Tom, how you doing, bro? Good. Uh, my name's Tom and I'm free hashish or, uh, really just a home grower and I've been growing and making hash mound consumption since I was 18, 2009. And yeah, I'm currently studying horticulture and breeding at Oregon State University, trying to get deeper knowledge on the cultivation side. That's awesome, man. And, and Tom sells and, you know, that is a bit bashful. He, he does the uh, coffee and donuts with Shiragam and, and, uh, Adam as well, you know, has done deep dives into, uh, into freeze dryers and the mTORs that they're pulling and, and where they should be and why. So if you're looking to, to, uh, analyze your freeze dryer information, reach out to Tom. He's got some really, really interesting 
That's why I called them the quiet. Doesn't say much, but when you hit it, hit the right topics, you know, it's just like well, yeah, it. absolutely. Who's next, Brent? Let Let's bring on one of the people that uh, that started this whole conversation. Absolutely, absolutely. Kind, welcome, welcome, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's going, guys. Pleasure. Uh, yeah, we're we make mainly solvent extracts. Uh, it all started from just a need to produce for myself. Um, I think we touched a bit on that in our previous podcast. Uh, so I'll skip over some of that stuff. If anybody's interested, they can go back and listen to it. We're, uh, we touched on it on the oil and flour podcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, we, we produce mainly solvent based extracts. We've also been involved with, uh, solvent lists. Um, yeah, I think I have some opinions about what we're talking about. Some probably based on fact, some not. And, uh, I look forward to hearing what everybody's got to say and, uh, hopefully learning something here today. We appreciate you being here, bro. I know you, you know, you've done a lot for the Canadian space and, um, you know, for, for letting people understand quality and, and quality from your standpoint. So, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, uh, Brian, who's up next? Right on. The, and the other up. Canadian. Mike. Absolutely. Chevy, how you doing, brother? Hey guys. I'm Chevy, Egyptian, Egyptian Hashishin in, uh, Vancouver, BC, Canada. And my approach is more derived towards hash um than rosin and whatnot even though um i produce all sort of solventless products and my approach is mainly about uh old school uh tech with new age influences um whatever that might be from pressed hash to air dry to sift and everything in between Thank you so much for coming, Chevy. I know, you know, you, you've got a lot going on and I appreciate you taking the time. I think, you know, your perspective and, and, and the way you look at things is is different than a lot of the way a lot of us look at things. And and I think that has to do with, you know, your upbringing and where you were raised and the flavors you were raised around. And, and I've got nothing, you know, I, I've gotten to spend a considerable amount of time with you and, and I've got nothing but respect for, for you and what you're doing and your passion around resin. So well, thank you so much for taking the time, brother. Pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Brad, who's next? What's going on, buddy? What's up, guys? Um, my name's uh, Waxplug on Instagram. I'm the co-founder of Chemtech and Nine Cloud Cannabis. So I, how I started into this was more on the BHO side. I started back then when there was just glass tubes available, and I got my first closed loop from, it was one of those grails that were the turpinators. I uh, started the same way with working with older material and it was darker. And that's how I, I got into taking the approach of how can I improve the color? Then it came down to flavor. So from there, I, that's how I came into uh, co-founding these two companies, uh, Chemtech and NineCloud Cannabis. So at NineCloud Cannabis, we do a, it's a type seven lab. We do BHO extractions and that's what allows us to do a lot of the research and development to create the products that we sell at Chemtech, which is filtration medias or specially custom designed like closed loop uh, parts or like how we came up with the whole centrifuge idea to spin jars and spin oils that way to get them to separate. That's dope, man. Where are you based? Uh, we're in San Diego, California, uh, South uh, SoCal. Awesome. 
Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're going to have a lot to add to the conversation. All right, who's next? We got the last, but certainly not the least. You know the man himself. I do I do? Bring him on. What up, RJ? What up? Um, <clears throat> what up, everybody? Uh, I'm RJ, uh, co-host of the Flyers Fire Show. Um, extraction specialist at Canada's leading third-party extraction company. Been making VHO for 16 years. Um, started with the I mean, pre, pre metal tubes and pre glass tubes, I'll put it that way. And, uh, had a lot of fun with it and now happy to, happy to bring my products to the legal space and, and provide that quality, uh, across Canada. So, uh, happy to be here and, and thanks for everyone for joining and, uh, can't wait to get this, uh, this party started. I, I was so rude. I was so rude. I forgot. I was going to save RJ till the end. We got one more. Last for last. Best for last. Somebody we haven't had on the show yet, but but I've got a tremendous amount of respect for Rosenbaum. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. For having me. Um, I'm Ros. I'm Rosenbelt in, in Phoenix. I've worked in working next in uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma, and California. And uh, and Chilti uh, is Drysift. Drysift Rosen. Rosen. Uh, I started making rosin back in 2018, and then I pushed into Temple Balls in 2019. That's awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm super stoked to get your input on, on you know, your, your thoughts on the topic. Cause I know, um, anybody who works with temple balls and, and, and things of that nature probably has a different opinion and, and a different view than, than some other people who are working with, with different, uh, different methodologies. So the way I want to start this off is, is just defining pigment. Um, Merriam-Webster defines pigment as a coloring matter in animals and plants, especially in in a cell tissue. And, and that's really what we're talking about today and, and how, how those pigments affect resin in terms of experience. And, you know, I want to hear your, your opinion on that question. I, I want to hear everybody on the panel's opinion on that question. And I think we're going to, we're going to get through that today, but I, I really, I'm going to open up the floor and I'm going to start with bird. And, you know, Bird's been working with, with resin for, for a long time, as everybody on this panel. And, and I'd love, Brett, to get your opinion on pigment and, and, and your thoughts on, on if it correlates with resin and, and quality or, or, or what are your feelings towards it? Oh, you're muted. You're muted, bro. There you go. There you go. Awesome. My opinion on it is, uh, from my experience, I'm not a, I'm not a per. Uh, um, certified in anything, uh, <laughs> doctor and anything cool, like some of the people here, <laughs> but, um, I, uh, I used to be a big, big pusher in saying that color doesn't matter at all. And, and you don't go by color. Um, but I kind of look, I go on a, a little bit of a different side to that as well now, because I'll, I'll agree with the fact that the best stuff I ever had and and the top stuff I ever had tended to be a lighter color, not. And when I say a lighter color, I mean something that is very dark and versus something that's um, not white. And um, something's always been on the lighter side of my, for my personal opinion on that. But I would say um, you don't use resin color to judge the quality of the resin. Um, like you have over, 
uh, 80% of the resin ambered and with no degradation um, to it. So I, I don't necessarily like to say either or, which makes it kind of complicated because some of the, my favorite stuff was on the lighter side, but at the same time, it wasn't like the whitest stuff I ever had. So I don't just say color is determining on my preference of quality by any means. And I, and once you start producing products, you start learning that, that, that there's some resin that comes out darker when you make it and you appreciate it for that because you, you smelt it as it grows, as you're growing it and, and you become, uh, familiar with that terpene profile and appreciate that terpene profile. And, and you know, you made it to the high quality level. So, you know, you didn't degrade it in the process. So. I could see how people use it to judge color because it could be a factor in how it was made. So it's kind of hard to throw it up there. Absolutely. Absolutely, bro. No, I, I think, I think I agree with what you're saying. Van Egyptian, I want to go to you, bro. I want to talk about, you know, you've got a really interesting look at resin and, and, and how you feel about it. And, and I'd like to give you an opportunity to start touching on some of those points that you and I have talked about so much. So. I believe that color is uh, part of an indication to quality. It cannot be always be the main uh, indicator to judge if it's that quality or not. I believe it's like one part out of three um, to assess resin. Um, I tend to go for more ember heads when it comes into extraction. And the reason I prefer that because it's part recipe, but I mean, part recipe is, um, according to the resin color, it will go under through different heat treatment. Uh, if we're talking uh, like traditional or just pressing hash in general, just pressing resin heads into a massive hash. Um, to me, the color would usually indicate how long do I need to press it. If it's more on the lighter side, I'll give it more time. If it's more on the darker side, I'll give it less time. And that usually delivers the desirable high that I'm familiar with. Then so are most people who are into the hash high. And um, that's what I could uh, sum it as briefly when it comes into um, color. Absolutely, man. And I think we're going to, you know, start unpacking this a little bit, but I think that's a good place yep. to start. Kind, do you have some time to, to express your, like, I know you've got a tremendous amount of experience running through a tremendous amount of material and, and you've got some pretty pointed opinions on this. I'd, I'd love for you to, to share them a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> I would agree with Bird in starting off and just saying that, uh, if I looked at all the different resin that I've smoked over the years, most of the time, uh, the most enjoyable ones were a lighter color versus dark. I'm not saying white, uh, but generally speaking that I think kind of touching on that. Um, I think your original statement, yeah, pigment, I, I would agree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with Webster's dictionary. I think that that's a good way to frame it for us. You know, we're talking about a plant, we're talking about concentrated resins, you know, what contributes uh, you know, to the character of that resin, the colors, you know, the aromas, et cetera. Um, okay. So specifically, I think, I think to kind of, kind of start and get to the heart of it, I think, uh, maybe Rick can point this out or help us on this, you know, to me, cannabinoids and red and terpenes in their undiminished, like oxidized states are, are white. They're clear, you know? Um, and so 
for me to give you guys some perspective, I have not run 22,000, uh, labs like, uh, Rick has, but, but our company has run over a thousand. So there's, there's probably few people in the country besides Rick or the lab that I use, uh, who have looked at more analyticals and tried to figure out, well, you know, if I have 90% of the sample accounted for in terms of what we're testing being terpenes and cannabinoids and, and, you know, and readily acknowledging that that isn't the whole ball of wax likely that, you know, I'm hoping, and I've had some conversations with Rick and, and the lab that we work with, um, you know, hopefully about bringing flavonoids to the table and, you know, and testing for, for that whole group of compounds and, and then probably others. And so what is in this other unquantifiable at this point, um, percentage of this extract that we all consume, does it contribute to the flavor? Does it contribute to the high? Um, is it good? Is it bad? Uh, can I remove it? Do you know what I mean? Uh, so kind of, that's how we, I came to like the perspective of it, um, was, was this almost like an analytical challenge to see, like, can we produce something that says a hundred percent, you know, that, that isn't like a distillate, you know, that is a, uh, true representation of the flat, the, the plant, like the plants extract terms of cannabinoids and terpenes or whatever. And so. Um, I guess that's kind of like, uh, from like more of a perspective and like research kind of, kind of thing. And then, yeah, like as an experience, generally speaking, yeah, like, you know, now that I'm able to remove these things for the most part and, and other people in the various methods, solventless, et cetera, are, are, you know, able to remove, you know, we're not all smoking green hash anymore. Right. Um you know, guys would be able to, to, to clean these things up. And so once, once you have them removed, uh, I can taste them now that they're there. And so, yeah, I do, I do have some opinions about, okay, look, I do think this is a diminished quality or, you know, uh, more oxidization than is desirable has gotten to this product or, or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and so I think throughout this, yeah, I'll be able to share some of those, you know, unpack some of that more for you guys now do you think that you're just, just to touch on what you said are you able to taste them after the remove because you now know what you're looking for is it like you can see the yeah. path so now okay yeah very much so yeah which which i'm not saying is is good bad or otherwise i'm just saying is different is identifiable i think we all can like if there's you know, if we're talking about even just bubble hash or whatever, and it's full of chlorophyll, it's green, right? It's full of a pigment. Well, that pigment does contribute flavor and impact something onto to the experience, right? So I think the question is, and I think, I don't think anyone's going to dispute that what we're talking about, that like no one really wants to smoke a bunch of green oil or green hash or green rosin, but where what is desirable and what's not you know i think we'll all agree too that flat plain white white sheet paper white rosin or whatever might not be the answer either right so rj what are your what are your thoughts and experiences um coming kind of from kind of both trains of thought making a lot of salt on this hash uh kind of the old school way not quite to the level of some of our uh peers on the panel but uh then delving into to hydrocarbon 
I mean, I always, you get used to a certain kind of hue that your resin has after a while. Right. Um, and then the whole kind of filtration thing, like, uh, wax blog is talking about came, came to bad. And then it was like, what, what are we really filtering? You know what I mean? Um, also what are the constituents that make up pigment? You know what I mean? Um, that's a lot to unpack everything from the pH of certain chem like chemical constituents to oxidized compounds. Absolutely. I mean, so it's, it's where, where, where do we even start to begin to what we take out and what we want to take out? Um, I think it's interesting, um, like Murphy Murray fractions, everything, and then reintroduces, um, uh, that's a super interesting way to take it. Um, the straight chromatography method, I think that's super cool. But then again, you know what I mean? In what ways are you putting Humpty Dumpty back together? Um, I have a little bit of a different philosophy on filtration, uh, which we can touch on a little bit later, but it's kind of what kind was saying is, is, is it the oxidized and oxidative compounds that are affecting and, and having adverse or negative effects? And if so, how do we deal with that? How do we remediate that? How do I pull that back or turn the volume down? On that? Um, so that's just kind of what's brought me to pigment, especially being able to play around with different filtration techniques and media, and then try to still achieve a specific goal. Absolutely. Wax, do you have any thoughts on, on anything to add? Like what, what's your experience with, with, with pigments? Oh, you're muted. You just got to unmute yourself, bro. One thing we've done at the lab is we sent, uh, we did a no CRC run and then we did them with clays. We did one with only silica. So just to start getting an idea of what's being pulled right off the bat, one thing I noticed was that terpenes would be the same on no CRC and CRC when it came to, uh, just about all of them except carbon. So silica, clays, uh, luminous all seem to allow the terpenes to pass through, but the flavor on both of those extracts was still different. So that's what led me to realize that it, all the flavor doesn't rely only on terpenes. These pigments also have a flavor to them and all those mixed together is what we actually taste. So from what I've read and studied is the, the pigment like you take a fresh plant and you, you extract it, it's going to come out pretty white. It's like a fruit. It hasn't ripened yet, basically. So these pigments are like flavonoids that the plants produce as they ripen up or as they need to send signals to attract certain bugs to them or whatever it is, whatever their environment is, is how these plants produce these pigments. And that's what we end up extracting in our extraction. It's so it's not just a combination of a, when we look at color to judge it, it could be pigments which are fresh and not oxidized, so the flavor is good, or it can be a oxidized version of that pigment, which is more on the darker scale, and that has more of the rancid or, or weird uh, flavors we tend to get. So uh, I'd sense a are you pulling, ten, are you pulling uh, things you can't account for? I'm sorry. Are you pulling things that you can't test for? Like, like you're saying, like you have all your list of terpenes and everything's coming back either the same, or I've seen a couple tests come back with higher terpene ratios because we're actually pulling some stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. But so are some of the things that we're pulling things that we can't quantify yet? So one thing I've done is, um, 
710, I sent you a picture of a, like a bunch of rings of colors. Is there any way we can display that right now? Yeah, for sure. Ryan, Ryan can grab that. Hopefully. So just to explain what we're going to look at, what I did here is I, uh, and Alex hopefully can help, uh, explain more after this, but basically I, I, I did my runs through the CRCs and afterwards I took a UV light and I shined it at the media and I could see the pigments glow. So that's how I was able to tell like, what is this media grabbing? What is that media grabbing? And then I started noticing patterns like certain pH would stop a certain color band, you know, or stuff like that. So that's why I started kind of dialing in the media as to which one is better for what extracts. And then I, it was just after extraction, after extraction. So here would be like a example of the chlorosorb. It's a media we sell. The chlorophyll glows red under the UV light and it shows that it's being selected for it. If you were to hit it with the regular light, which would be the other picture I sent, it would just look like regular right there. So at the minute you hit it with the UV light, you see what pigments uh, the medias are actually picking up. There should be another picture down there. If you can go down, there's one that has more of a rainbow. That's the carbon in the bottom. It shows that it's stopping that baby blue band. And that carbon is of a higher pH. I think it's a pH of 10 or so or a, around there. It's, it's pretty alkaline. Here we're showing the clays, what they're grabbing. So you start seeing the colors. So that one that has just the red and green around it, but it looks uh, blank in the center is the W1 underneath. And then the picture that you go under, it would be another clay basically, but with uh, different parameters. And you can see the other picture, the next one, you'll see that that one actually grabs all the colors. So that's why when you see RC, you get some stuff that tastes like flavored is because some of these medias are grabbing all the colors, you know, and you, you don't want to grab them all. Sometimes if your stuff is pretty fresh, you only need to remove the chlorophyll band and the other band, you know, and you want to keep those other flavonoids. Absolutely. Those combined will give you the, what people refer to as the non-CRC flavor. Interesting. And I think, uh, Alex, he knows way more about these, uh, pigments and the, how they, re they reflect. He sells the pigment tracker actually. Before I, before we jump in, into the, the pigments deeper, I'd love to get Tom's look at this. Tom's been super helpful for me this week, wrapping, getting, getting my head wrapped around it. And, and Tom, I'd love to get your take on, on, you know, what some of these solvent or solvent extraction, uh, comments are saying around CRC and pulling these flavonoids and, and that truly affecting flavor. And how does that translate to you into your views in the solvent as well? So I, I've, I mean, I mainly don't solvent with, but then I've also had experience with solvents and I guess how I perceive the color thing or the pigment thing is with solvent lists or cold water extraction, we're focusing on separating the glandular trichome head where in the solvent extraction, you are using a solvent and running it through all of the plant material. So there's more of a chance to pull parts out of the plate material in my mind than a proper cold water extraction. So correct. Uh, just to add to that real quick, uh, you, when you do the, like you're saying, you wash the glands off, if those glands are already amber or more mature, that's usually where the pigment ends up in the rosin because 
technically exactly. I can wash it through the bags. It should get rid of the other pigments. Yep. So that that's kind of where mine and I, I've been making hash since 2009. Obviously, you never have a freeze dryer. Most of my hash was pretty dark, but I smoked it all. If it was green, I wasn't cutting <laughs> it. If it's green, I throw it out. Like, I totally agree with that. But then when it comes to solvent extraction, since you are hitting all of the plant material, I do want to see some de-waxing and something done to pull out what you could extract from the plant material that you don't necessarily want to smoke. So those can actually be pulled with just uh, adding, having moisture and acidity in the clays. That's why when we run through CRC, we tend to get more clarity in the oil. Just having those two uh, factors in there, it's going to start to de-wax the oil. But most people I notice um, when they refer to de-waxing and they get that white pulp that settles, I've sent it into tests. It's actually THCA that's crashing out of the solution. Okay. And um, there are some fats, but if you just run it through a CRC, it's such a little amount of fats that come out that it's it's pretty easy to remove. It would be more of a problem on hemp, I would believe. Hemp tends to have usually more fat to it. Rosen Bell, I'd love to get your uh, your view of, of pigments. Being somebody that works primarily with temple balls and 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 starting with rice, you know, how how do you view this stuff? Yeah, that's kind of it's kind of complicated. Complicated one end. I went with mostly dryly dry materials, so I see a higher percentage of oxidization. Um, but but I do think that you guys are right. We added the added pigments, being other things like flavonoids. Um, and the ca 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 carotenoids is the other one. Um, flavor as well to the oil is definitely flavor coming from them. I want to say uh, things like garlic chirps, which we know are chirps, are most likely, in my opinion, something like a flavonoid. Um, and so flavonoid testing, I think it's going to be the next big thing with trying to figure out pigmentation. Interesting. So speaking of testing, Rick, you've been, you know, listening quietly and, and, and absorbing the information. You know, I, I reached out to you and asked you to be on the panel and was absolutely stoked when you, when you agreed to join us. Well, you know, overall, just absorbing what everybody's saying, what, what are your thoughts on the topic so far? Well, um, I think my, like where I feel the pigment, I think really comes into play definitely is, I don't know if it's a hundred percent on the quality. I definitely agree though. The, the majority of, I brought so many different hashes I have here, probably a hundred and, um, and the majority of them that I do prefer are certainly on the lighter side, but it also, it, it definitely has to do with the process as well. And knowing the flower material you're working with, right? You know, is it outdoor? Is it, is it grown past maturity or later into the maturity or whatever, right? And, and every kind of genetic does express itself a little bit different, even within its own environment. So, you know, if everyone here has the same pheno it wouldn't all be the exact same after they're, we're all done growing it. Right. So, um, I, I think it definitely does play a factor, but I don't know if it's kind and as Chevy said, it's, it's like one of a few different factors. Now what wax blood was saying was, was pretty cool. And it's too bad, uh, you know, different, uh, countries and uh, cause I'd love to even get some of that 
what, what you're showing in those pictures, I'd love to even test some of that. I know it's clay, but whatever else is in that we're, we've started on our flavonoids method, have it developed now, we've been doing some, I don't think I have any samples here. That I think I can work with you on that, Rick. I think right. I can work with you on that. I'd love, we already sent stuff. We already sent stuff to you. So we just got to work out. Oh, really? But, uh, yeah, <laughs> awesome. about that. if you can talk about that after, but yeah, I would think absolutely. I'm going to powders for sure. Yeah. I'm getting, and, I'm getting wax plugs entire lineup. I just arrived today really? actually. So <laughs> seriously. Yeah. I, I was going to say a lot of those medias will grab different pigments. So when you hit them with the light, you'll see they're, they're all going to glow different and it's going to tell you what it's being selected for. And that's yeah. how you know which one to use. So right now oh, we're, we're at about 15 flavonoids that we have on our list, but then we're going to get into ketones, aldehydes, esters, all that kind of other stuff. Right. And, and I just want to work with great guys like you and the ladies, everyone, right. That really has a passion for the, the plant because I'd love to try and figure this out. There hasn't been enough R and D, right? Absolutely. Nobody really knows. We think we have an idea. There's stoner theories, all that kind of stuff. Right. But is it actually true? If wax plug and sending out that stuff for testing and everything, that's great. I love hearing that. Um, you know, it kinds doing tons of testing too. That's awesome because we really need to try and, uh, as you know, a, Collaborate uh, as collaboration and stuff, try and figure it out ourselves because no one else, you know, none of the chads or stock companies that think they're a cannabis company, they're not doing any of that kind of 100%. stuff. So that, that's where we got to do that and uh, and try and figure it out. I don't know if it's a flavonoid or not. It's it's interesting that you say you can taste the, the difference, right? And kind of talked to a few times and he says that we, you know, he tastes that oxidation. I don't. I don't know if I've got enough to taste to figure that out yet. I mean, maybe if something tastes really bad, I'm sure. Um, obviously there's, there's certain stuff here that I love the taste of more than others. And yeah. there is even a couple, like even this one, it's got 23% turps in it. That it, when you look at the turps, you look at the profile, it doesn't seem like there's anything special. Yeah. There's a lot of turps, but it's all the typical clears, but there's something in that. So yeah. I really think it's a flavonoid. Uh, I, I'm not sure yet. We're still working on that. I'd love to try and figure it out. And there's a few other, even uh, some flower cultivars that are on the market right now that have distinct taste. Yes, yeah, a lot of them smell good and everything, but not all of them taste ever like that almost leaves an aftertaste, nice, pleasant aftertaste. So yeah, I absolutely. really want to uh, try and focus on that. But as Stein said, like I got pure terpenes right there and they're, they're clear, right? So. You know, I don't think the terpenes itself are, are adding. Can you hold them back up again? What exactly is flavonoids, which, uh, definitely I think are a big factor in the, the pigment. Yeah. Where we uh, hold that product of, of solvent, solventless, when we're talking hash, I, I don't really know yet. That's something we're still trying to explore. Rick, can you hold that jar of terpenes up again, just to show everyone? Or it might be a. You might have a little bit of a delay. Are you there? Not sure if you're uh, Anyone else can hear me now? We can hear you. I don't know if you can hear us. Yeah, right. All good. We can switch back over. Um, I wanted to to ask Adam what your thoughts were with um what your thoughts were on uh on this topic. Just you know, and I was going to say just before we get into it, Adam's got a really I don't know if many people have picked up on it and Adam has said this once, but he's really had my, my head spinning since we've talked to him. And, and since I've, you know, been diving deep into your page, the idea of 
is Amber Heads really an Amber Head? Um, and, you know, I, I see Tom smirking at that because I think he's had the conversation as well. So I'll let Adam go into it. Um, well, I also don't want to forget about, I wanted to talk about Langley because I feel like there's some people that have more experience with <clears throat> than me or in them. Uh, you know, like what Tom is saying, I, we really do just specialize in particle separation. So we're breaking the anatomy of the trichome apart and separating it by size classification. And there's not really, um, breaking that, you know, dissolving anything and refiltering and removing of, of, of anything. So. I don't know. I want to talk about limonene just for a second before I go off on that, just because I feel like it relates to the pigments a lot. Like I've noticed in orange flavors, um, you have to go a lot quicker. Yeah, you got to really be good at storing it um, because the things that are heavy in limonene seem to turn a dark orange fairly quickly if you're not careful. Um, and I just felt like maybe, and then I was reading into like some essential oils websites, so like uh, doTERRA one of them like even says that limonene oxidizes quickly maybe we don't need to say oxidizes more quickly maybe we like a freshness um duration of freshness more so but anyways maybe we could all just like a dialogue about that just for a second but, but i could uh, or i could just go off on uh, well I'd, I'd like to, on i'd like to I'd like to open that up first to everybody and then get get back to you adam if that's okay you guys does anybody have any any experiences similar with to Adam? Well, I was going to say, I, I, I just before we get into that, because I'm like the, the the science geek about it. And so when we talk about the terpenes and then the chemical compound of it, and then as it's exposed, a single hydrogen bond changing from, if you're into chemistry, a cis to a transformation will can potentially change the effects as well as the flavor and the color, and then down the road, we'll talk a little bit to Alex about that because I, I think that the science is quite important there. Um, but yeah, so l let's open it up a little bit as you know, limonene. Yeah, does anybody have any experiences? Well, I, I think that I have one one thing that I could say about that. I, I think that you're right about the flavor of the lemon, the lemon strains being something that you have to treat with some some care. But I, I don't necessarily think that that limonene or even pigments are the source of the qualities that we're talking about, but they might be indicators of that. Where if you have a pigment, you might also have other contamination that is similar to the pigment. That pigment doesn't have to be adding all of the flavor that we're talking about or adding any effects. That pigment could just be adding the color that allows us to identify um, other things that could be in there. So like. The carotenoids, which are red, our industry is kind of allows them to be in the, in the plant. We kind of use them as an indicator of, of quality in some ways, where if you have a light yellow extract versus a green extract, you're going to go for the light yellow. Carotenoids are very similar to terpenes. And so, you know, if you're looking for something to correlate with a high monoterpene extract, the carotenoids are likely to do that uh, because the properties are just more similar to the desirable terpenes. Um, so that doesn't exactly directly relate back to, uh, how you need to treat the strain that has limonene in it. But, um, you know, I, I just think it's kind of important to look at that where like these, these molecules might be only a 0.01% of the, 
mass or 0.1% of the mass, but they could be contributing a lot of color and almost no effect whatsoever. Um, you know, like chlorophyll, for example, is not volatile and I don't think it even, I don't think it even has a boiling point. I believe it degrades before it boils, uh, at like 200 Celsius. So, you know, we're not going to be smoking chlorophyll. We might be smoking some of the breakdown products of chlorophyll, but it could be that because chlorophyll has certain properties, when we end up having chlorophyll in the extract, we end up with other contamination too, like chunks of plant material. And in the, in the ice hash example, or just contamination that's more polar than THC in the butane extraction example. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my, my thought on, on, on that where, where the, the pigments might not actually be the quality. They're kind of an indicator of the quality. If that interesting, interesting. Time. I love that. Do you want to, I love that you want to comment? I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I kind of had a comment to touch on kind of like what wax bugs saying and what's kind of being put around now i didn't actually think to use uv light on uh on any medias or, or any different filter types or whatever um i do recall actually guys over the years putting the uv on bongs and seeing various colored resin in different people's bongs you know and from what different things they were smoking i guess and maybe temperatures and whatever um but yeah, very much so. Like while trying to break down, um, you know, what it was that I wanted to pull out, which I, I definitely don't have down to an exact science by any shape or form. Um, you know, I had to look at what it was. Like green is obviously chlorophyll. Uh, you know, like the oranges are the keratins. I think deep reds are oxidized compounds. Like if we look at our blood, right? Like a deep, rich red is from the oxygen, right? Uh, this is a theory, um, you know, I think, so some of these deeper, richer reds closer to browns are actually, uh, you know, just like signs of some of these oxidized compounds that I'll interrupt you, know, you there for a moment, just as far as blood, please. Um, you actually, you're talking about the uh, hemoglobin pigment. Yeah. Um, so when oxygen binds to it, you're talking about oxygenation. Um, and that's when it actually yeah, it does turn red. Otherwise it goes purple or almost like black. Yeah. Okay, and the same thing go. is actually true for chlorophyll. Um, chlorophyll is a porphyrin ring that has a magnesium molecule in the middle of it, sort of like how heme has an oxygen molecule in the middle of it. Um, so that porphyrin structure, which is basically like a big circle, is very good at absorbing energy. And um, that's why it's in tons of plants. So like as soon as that magnesium molecule leaves chlorophyll, it starts to change color and it loses its ability to absorb, absorb light kind of as efficiently. And so it will turn, uh, more of like a, a light yellow and then a, or like a light green and then like a light yellow. And you can see that if you were to go outside and just extract some grass and then leave it out on a, on a, uh, windowsill for an afternoon, it'll go from being a bright, you know, a bright green color to being a more, uh, uh, a darker shade of green. Uh, so yeah, blood is a great example for that. I think that's a great comparable thing. And blood probably fluoresces very similarly to crop rates, to be honest. So under UV light, I, I would bet that blood maybe looks blue, um, just as a random side thing. Um, but, and, and what you said too, I think that, that oxidized compounds is actually right on. If you can go, uh, 710 doctor onto the, 
the carotenoid slide that I sent you or some of the pictures that I sent you. Um, so this is a slide that shows, sorry, these are just kind of pulled off of Google. Um, go to the next one, if you would, uh, next one, one more, one more. We have the, so carotenoid. So this is the, the very nonpolar, very monoterpene like pigment called carotenoids, more fat soluble even than THC. And you can see at the top, we have this compound lycopene that is, or not, not all the way at the top, but you have this compound lycopene that's split into these two different carotenoids. And what that means is that the plant has some amount of lycopene that's being synthesized so that it can be used. And one of the things that it uses it for is as an oxidation, um, as a, as a compound that will handle oxidation and cellular stress. So if you can see here, the beta carotene, if you go to the, the right side of that fork, uh, is oxidized into zeaxanthin and then anthoxanthin, and there's this cycle called the anthoxanth or uh, the uh, xanthophyll cycle. It's basically just a way to handle oxidative stress in the cells. So you have these two compounds. One of them is a very nonpolar monoterpene-like compound, and you have an oxidated or an oxa oxidized version of that, which would be the the xanthophylls, and they kind of sandwich THC, where THC is in the middle of them in terms of polarity. So you end up with this situation where you have the oxidized compounds. They have a function in the cell and we see them in all of our extractions. But if you do a very nonpolar extraction, you can kind of avoid the xanthophylls and the more oxidized compounds because they have that oxygen. And uh, at least this is all our, our kind of theory on it. Um, and uh, whereas it's very difficult to just do a, like a very cold propane extraction and avoid getting the lycopene or the beta carotene, uh, because they are very similar to the monoterpenes in their properties. Uh, so Alex, so uh, you, you, you just like, you gave me a little bit of a hard on here, by the way. <laughs> okay. Cause the, the way, that, the way that this is broken down and the, like, I feel like I'm back in lectures all over again. And the fact that you've got lutein and zeoxanthin, these are yellow pigments that are actually found in your eye that are the protective pigments for your rods and cones that prevent macular degeneration. Yeah. They're also yeah, found so in it, almost every single pigmented fruit and vegetable. Yeah. So like, this is where we get vitamin A from. That's um, And like retinoic acid, I think is used in skin treatments as well. Um, retinol is the, is what vitamin A is, uh, is made from too. So, so there's a, uh, yeah, there, there's like these, these molecules are pretty ubiquitous. Like if you, if you go to a plant almost anywhere, these molecules will exist with, um, with other pigments like chlorophyll. I think that the carotenoids alone, it might be carotenoids and xanthophylls account for like 25% of the yellow pigment in plants that we see. And the other 75% is a breakdown of like, uh, of the, uh, anthos anthocyanins, sorry, I forgot the name already. anthocyanins, and then the chlorophyll breakdown products that are yellow. Um, but for propane extraction, so for the, for the butane extraction side, this is the red, ex, you know, on this, on this diagram here, I think are, are a good place to start for what are the red compounds that are there in new material, no matter what, and then what are there in the kind of older oxidized material as well. Um, because we see this in our, in, uh, I have here some samples that we separated with chromatography. 
I'm going to see if I can hold them up. Let's go slow, Brian. Just one second. We're not, we don't have you full screen yet. That's okay. So does pigment relate to age? So of if you, if you think about like a very young tomato, what color is it? It's green. And so a ripe tomato is red and there's a combination of reasons for that. Part of it is the chlorophyll breaking down. So the chlorophyll, instead of being a bright green color, it goes to a more, uh, kind of in the background yellow color. And in the end of life for the tomato, the, the carotenoids kind of take over, um, the job of absorbing light from the sun because the chlorophyll is starting to die and the carotenoids then come out. So the tomatoes turn red and there's all these other things that happen at the same time where like the amount of fats in the plant increase in general, um, the amount of carotenoids and xanthophylls increase, but the chlorophyll kind of breaks down and becomes less green, um, and turns some more of those brown colors. So I think that there's probably a plant out there that ages very similarly to weed. It might not be tomatoes, but, um, we can probably start by looking at these just very kind of ubiquitous, uh, cycles of pigment that are in plants and kind of look for when are they changing in, in the, in the grow cycle and what do we have to do in the manufacturing to avoid them? Um, I don't know if you guys okay. can see. These are... Let me ask a question here. Sorry, go ahead. So at what point are, in some respects, their functions of degradation, and then other respects, their compounds that have kind of all the value for like, to just to bridge the gap between our solvent and, and our solventless homies up here on the panel? Yeah. At, at what point, like, do in solvent, we, we, we view them as functions of degradation? But in solventless, they're actually the the building blocks for all the flame, all the effect that we want. So I think I, I think that the solventless people are mostly getting the effect still from THC. I don't know for sure, but I think that the pigments are. The, in my experience, the pigments are not vastly different. It's just how are they delivered into the extract? How does contamination get there? Like in the for the solventless people. Has anybody here heard that, that chlorophyll is water soluble? Has anybody heard that in, in the industry that, you know, water chlorophyll has a, has a, if you have like wet weed, it's going to, and you extract it, it'll come out green. Is it chlorophyll non-polar though? Chlorophyll is extremely non-polar and it. it's, it's a kind of industry thing where people, because it's more polar than THC, it does get this kind of, um, wrap to it. And I think that, that also when you have live weed you have a lot of live chlorophyll and so it's very bright green so you extract that and you kind of correlate the two but it really just comes from the live chlorophyll um point being that it, for for solvent extractors you don't have to worry about solubilizing the pigment you do have to worry about knocking it off of the plant and chlorophyll comes in little cellular uh, organelles called chloroplasts that are like i think that they're five to ten micron or something like that so you think they would just go right through your bags but they don't, they get caught in the hash in themselves. And then doing things like blasting water onto it to get the green foam to kind of accumulate. And I've seen people even just scoop it right off the top. That's all chloroplast. That's not solubilized chlorophyll. So compared to the hydrocarbon extractors, you don't have to, you have to worry about a particle of chlorophyll instead of worrying about a 
solubilized chlorophyll that you have to uh, filter out in the powder, uh, like what Jordan was talking about. Can I ask you a question? Uh, so in a freeze-dried tray, if you let the water run, it tends to take the plate matter. So it's nonpolar. Why do you think it would pull that more so than also? Could be gravity or just the resin is kind but of like dense of anything. Yeah, I don't know. I know that's a good question. Um, it could be that the resin is kind of. Water does some funny things because water is uh, rather interesting as well on a scientific level. And the, the, the bonds, the covalent bonds and things that are, are happening there, hydrogen bonds. Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to get your, your, in, your input on, on this topic. And I know you had something to add before. Yeah, I just have a question, um, circling back to that limonene, limonene, limonene quicker, quicker, is that because it's in a more solvent terpene and it's breaking down material in the one, the one. I think she was asking if limonene is a higher solvent terpene, um, rosin diet. It, it, it is, it, it definitely is like, I mean, some people use it too. I don't know, RJ, if you use it as one of your cleaners for some of your equipment. I don't, but I, when I run CRC, I noticed that it's definitely one of the first to elute. Like, I think it's the fastest terpene to elute. Yeah. That's why I like, you know, over CRC products have that just bang and lemon, like cleaner taste, just because like, if it's going to be one of the only thing that elutes, elutes through, it's going to be super concentrated. Um, so I would definitely have to agree. And maybe that's why it also likes to oxidize so quickly or potentially, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not too sure. We do have some clients that, um, use limonene to clean their equipment three batches. And then they, that they ask us to test for the presence of that and make sure, cause they're GMP and make sure that there is no limonene in their accounts left over, but specifically that's what they're looking for. Interesting. How do you yeah. confirm there's no <clears throat> product when there's limonene in the products? So no, they're, they're taking swipe, like swabs of the oh, wow. after. <laughs> That's very GMP. Yeah. What, uh, what's been your experience, Rosin, Rosin Bell with, with working with that high limonene material? I just came back again. Oh, pardon. What, what, what's your experience been working with material that you've, you've experienced as high? Oh, maybe we might've just dropped out. Um, well, limonene is supposed to be extremely nonpolar, right? It's supposed to be more nonpolar than any, I think it's the most nonpolar of the terpenes that we have, uh, we have. So I, I would imagine it's trapped in the trichome and it's not affecting your, your solventless extraction much at all. It's probably a correlation. Maybe, maybe if you can smell it, it's a sign that the plant is broken apart or maybe some of those cells have broken down. And so then when you go to whip it all up and, and get your hash off of it, you're just breaking up some of the plant material itself. Like you imagine someone on like a very small level, just went and like poked holes in the plant all over it. So you can smell it more quickly than when you go to, yeah, when you go to shake it up, you're going to get more contaminant, uh, cracked off the too, just from those cells being open. I've seen people, um, there's a, there was a lab that had a really high quality grower who was sending them fresh frozen that was so frozen. They had to grind it up with a, 
like a hand grinder, um, in order to get it into the machines and just the process of doing that and cutting the plant material up, basically doomed the hatch to be a beet grade look to it, even though it smelled amazing and, and tastes great. It's still that just had us of, of chlorophyll released into it. Uh, and we think it was because of that. Uh, and the same thing was happening on the solvent extraction side too, um, where they're just always getting darker extraction. Um, oh, and, uh, and Can anyone unpacks that. Sorry, what? So, uh, Billy Cossack says limonene is produced outside of the trichome heads. Interesting. So the terpenes are not inside of the trichome. Are you sure it's not at least? We don't, we don't know what the ant is factual. We, we okay. Well, a lot of the stuff isn't made in the trichome. A lot of it is made in the plant and then they use the trichome as a, uh, it secretes into the trichome, I think. Uh, Adam tag, you're it. We're not, uh, uh, we're not from, from what I've read, what makes cannabis unique genomically is the vesicles that are released from the disc cells, which subtend the gland head. So the disc cells are like at the bottom with the other cells. The stalks are really just like elongated dermal cells and the, the head is completely different in function. You know, it stores the secondary metabolite, but the vesicles are actually the secondary metabolite, the terpyphenolic compounds that are what make cannabis unique because obviously other plants produce resin, non-glanular and glanular. But, uh, what makes cannabis so special is the terpyphenolic compounds, terpyphenolic compounds, or better known as cannabinoids. Cool. Yeah. And I, I don't know if the, the carotenoids, the carotenoids may be leaked into the trichome head as well. Um, if you take ex extracts, um, if you take uh keef and you extract it with a non-polar solvent, there's definitely some yellow color that comes out. I don't know if it's yellow color from trace plant material left in there, or if it's yellow from the trichome itself. But I think that the trichome, the trichome ambering with age could be carotenoids being transferred into the, into the carot or into the, uh, into the trichome themselves. I think that someone has characterized everything inside of a trichome and could probably go and look to see if there is a carotenoid in the trichome as well. Cause that would be well, what I've mostly read is, uh, plant journals from Paul Malberg. He, he was the dude who had the only license, uh, with the U S government to study cannabis from the sixties to the nineties. So he, you know, they deep, deep dive into gland, uh, all the science on how the cuticle of the gland head is created by, by the, by the vesicles I was saying are the, are the metabolites are partially, you know, they're different functions, but partially are, um, they are, um, transporting themselves and oxidizing against this sheet of the cuticle and building up so that it has stably, you know, it's it, now it, it'll be more stably structurally sound to hold and store more oils, uh, which was cool, but um, well, yeah, it would be, it would be cool to look at his research and see if he saw carotenoids in the trichome or if they did not see uh, carotenoids in the trichome. Yeah, it would be cool. I did want to just say, and then I'm done on the, um, trichome stuff, but, um, I noticed in my hash, when I put it under the scope, you know, just quick, fresh, uh, water, you know, you only have about an hour to look at the stuff under the microscope before it starts to go bad. But, um, 
I think that the trichomes are in all, and whenever you're looking at them and you're, when you're harvesting them, they're still, you know, contiguous, contiguous gland heads will be in different shapes and sizes relating to their life cycles. Right. So you'll have other, you'll have, um, full, whatever, quote unquote, ripened gland heads that those, the, those cells are starting to, um, it's the, uh, uh, part of the process where it starts to senesce, apoptosis, yeah. whatever you call it, cellular, digi cellular degeneration. Yeah. So I think that that amber disc cell is refracting through the gland head. And I've had talks with macro photographer, you know, like Eric Nubshots is who really has shown in good, in good visual images, um, different, you know, because the light obviously has to do with the way that everything is, you're seeing everything. And so really, whenever you're looking at an amber, quote unquote, amber, uh, trichome gland head, really what you're looking at is the disc cells, um, at their last stage of their you know, cellular cycle, right? Interesting. Chevy, I want to, I want to switch it over to you and ask you as, as somebody who works with, uh, a lot of aged and, 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 and plants that are, are run a little bit longer. Once you get to know a cultivar, are you able to associate the flavor that the, the color of the resin with the, with a certain flavor that you're, you're going to expect? Uh, I don't think that is the case always. Okay. And so I would like to make a clarification first when we're comparing the colors. Ha is concentrate, but what ha Oh, man. That's timing. Yeah. Are you there, Shelby? Looks like he's still there. That was, that was a pretty epic. Are you back? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got you now. Stand over. Yeah. So when it comes into color, just uh, um, a subjective observation. The darkening of resin, aside from, aside from the, uh, the resin color, anything with enough heat will darken. Um, resin that has been dried properly on a flower, that will be the cured part. And once it gets pressed, this is where the aging starts to happen. So the aging and the curing part are, are separate. What does the color equate to when it comes into hash? So the chemistry of hash requires everything to be intact from the waxes to the oil content to the flavonoid and carotenoid. Once that process happens, there is a chemical reaction that happens within the hash that forces to darken. The light could not penetrate through it as it would when it's um, loose resin or when you squish that into rosin or clarify it further through hydrocarbon. So color is not always subjective to the flavor. I think that would be mostly on the cultivar. Um, how old was it? You're going to get a variant in the flavor, but it's mostly the high that counts. Interesting. And so what I'm, well, yeah, please go ahead. Oh, go ahead first. No, I, I just think it's, it's, it's really interesting. Like I, I, I love, 
you know, unpacking the, the, the way you're looking at it. Bert, yeah. do you have, you know, any comments on, on what's been said as far as what you've seen with all the work you've done with resin? Oh, you're there. You're muted. Yeah. Oh, there. Now, there it is. Yeah. It's really pretty much like you guys are all covered it pretty well. Yeah. Pretty much is how I feel. It's, it's not a, a determining factor hundred percent, but it's something that you use as a selecting factor, possibly, you know, to help guide you in the direction of uh, what you're evaluating with, without all the background knowledge of everything, it can, it can help you evaluate things. Absolutely. And, and so, you know. It is your when when you're phenol hunting and, and you're doing separate washes and, and you're seeing uh you're watching your fresh press from two different phenos of the same cultivar cure out and, and become different colors. Are you are you associating that with, with different terpene profiles? Or or do you think that, you know, at, with this conversation that it's just, you know, a a, a lot more going on in there? You know. Not every time. That's the problem with what you can't do is associate one thing and say, this is a hundred percent of the time that, that, that what you see, but I have seen, uh, um, consistencies in certain, uh, terpenes such as like, um, the orange, um, terpene that you find, uh, be more elusive for washing, um, coming out in a lighter color, no matter what I tend to do when the flower is picked at its perfect harvest time, just like you know everything else from the same farmer and it just tends to be a little bit darker um of a, of a color and then that, that's for the orange terpene that i tend to come across but um yeah it's it's like i said it's you could you don't do that every time that's not going to be 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. absolutely like everyone always says tangy runs dark you know what i mean and like trop runs dark and just always like so it's got to be just the certain whatever you know what i mean whatever it is that actually constitutes that flavor also has that effect on pigment. So then it brings us to the question is pigment flavor. Yes. I, I kind of agree with that. You know, when you break it down to the, to the definition of it, of, of, um, of what's happening and what we're, we're tasting that it, it, it is a flavor and might be good. It might be bad. I think that's part of what we're finding out. Well, I was going to say you can have. I was going to say you can have all um, flavors be pigment, but not all pigment be flavors. Yeah, because you can get pigment just from having sun grown. So I don't think that particularly adds for in my English terpenes, but I don't know. I don't do with what I do with pigment is darker. Which I guess like to what he said was not every pigment would be flavor, but there might be a correlation to some of them. Um, I, um, I have yeah. an input. I have an input on oh. that matter. Basically the way that I see it, it's a, uh, part of the chemical matrix that are required for the hash to transfer further to a higher state. Um, I would like to compare that to wine. So when they're making wine, they would mush the whole grape with the skin, with everything. And from there, the whole compounds that has been 
refined into a mush creates what, for example, red wine is known at for its characteristics um, compared to just fermenting the grape juice itself. So in terms of hash, um, they might not have a value themselves, but they are part of the chemical reaction that happen throughout the aging after you have pressed the resin. Does anyone want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I actually did a little bit of training in the winemaking industry and it does come down to that. They have a lot of techniques and that's how they kind of make each kind of wine, you know? So it would be kind of like for us, the same thing is it would be a sort of like a type of extract, you know? So filtered would be like a blonde beer, whereas non-filtered would be like an IPA beer. And, um, one thing that that got me thinking of, I've been meaning to try this is maybe we should be, uh, aging our HTVs, you know, our sauces and terpenes to see if they age the same way as wine does, you know, since they are pretty mm -hmm. similar, there'd be something new that ends up evolving. Five-year-old live resin. So it's not live anymore. <laughs> and you know, it's definitely changed a lot, right? But it's got a lot of the same notes. You know, I mean, it's just—it's <laughs> still tasty. It's not yeah. rancid, right? It's just yeah. That's what I wanted to get get a testing done just so I can see the numbers and get like an actual start looking for the pattern as to what what is the aging doing. Is maybe it's the way we store it as well. You know, like it can't be in UV light; it has to be away from oxygen. And yeah, de definitely, light is a, a something you don't want near the hash. One time we lost a freezer of like a small freezer due to electricity problems. And it was uh, full of mandarin, just, you know, heavy limonene, but very citrusy. And, uh, it smelled like fermented, like just, it, it wasn't that even that long and it smelled, you know, just a few days after, you know, cause we were checking all of them and everything was fine, but that one overlooked it. And, uh, that one went back into the garden. But I thought it was interesting that it smelled fermented. Start to mold, maybe? No, it wasn't. It was just, it started the, 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 I don't know why, but just started to like smell like it was fermented. Maybe it was molding. It was probably molding. Um, was it old, fresh frozen or material? Yeah, it's fairly fresh. For, because I have experienced that with, uh, a papaya that's been uh, in the deep freezer for two years, it started fruity for the first few months and slowly started to take onto cheese and then into some feet, fungus type papaya, um, like as if it, it had, yeah, it, it turned basically into cheese. It was uh, sweet and fruity at the beginning. And as it, it have aged, it turned into that, the same notes you're explaining. So Rick, can you some carotenoid testing? So we have not, uh, got any of those standards for to be able to test that. But after this, this, uh, uh round table, I think I need to look into the scene if we can purchase some of those standards to start doing some of those. Yeah, it, 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 should, it should be that an HPLC DAD would be able to do it. I hope to use a different column. Um, uh, I don't know how much in the butt that is for you guys. 
Uh, we've done many different problems, sort of, right? With multiple chains, but we are doing flavonoids on the LCM SMS. Okay. Well, yeah, if, if I haven't even, um, I have a quote for like $400 a test from a lab to do carotenoids testing. And they have like a list of maybe 15 that they identify. Um, but I don't know what the specific carotenoids are or are they testing that in cannabis already or are they testing it? No, it's just, some, it's just some lab. I don't know. So can, can they even, are they even sure like that, that method is suitable for cannabis? Cannabis is such a complex matrix. Can you, can yeah. you talk yeah, about, sure. Rick, can you take a moment to just talk about, you know, the complexities in testing and, and the issues that we faced in Canada with a myriad of testing, uh, clinics, uh, being treated and, and, and testing for what? would probably be arguably the wrong things in the wrong areas. Well, yeah, I think one of the, the, the main issues is that a lot of these labs are, you know, pharmaceutical, environmental, water, whatever, and then, and cannabis and their methods, their equipment, their, their staff, you know, they're not all trained specifically for <laughs> cannabis. The methods aren't developed specifically for cannabis. Uh, it, it is not the cleanest matrix to work with in an analytical lab. It's not a sterile product. Means. Uh, it's amazing. I love it. Right. But, uh, it is difficult and I'm not a scientist, right? Uh, the, got a great team, uh, I've helped provide them with a lot of cannabis education, trichomes, you know, different matrices, all these great guys, the girls that are on this round table that make all different kinds of products. Uh, doing the, the innovative stuff that is Waxborn to show and that stuff is really cool. But as far as testing, you know, to try and nail down the most accurate sensitive method really have to be very specific. And then where we get, especially edibles, for example, right? So we've got like a, a high sugar, a high fat, uh, and a liquid method for edibles. Chocolate can really mess up, um, you know, the quality of chocolate can really um, lead to it not being suitable for a method. And then we have to do for development and stuff like that. Um, so what, what do you mean? What do you mean by that, uh, Rick, that the quality of chocolate, do you mean the actual um, ingredients that have gone in it or too yeah. high of cocoa, too high sugar, too high? And the specifically the quality and, uh, of the actual like cocoa or whatever it's exactly called. That can really change how uh, the background noise and all that kind of stuff on the, uh, on instruments are, it really can affect that. And then you can't really nail down that sensitivity. The edible method is very sensitive. I think the LOQ is 0 0.00025. Uh, so it, it's, it's very sensitive and, and little different ingredients, uh, that something's probably putting in. Um, could definitely perfect it. And then as far as what Jameson was asking, like, uh, a lot of Americans are on this, we have 96 pesticides that Health Canada requires, um, to test for And that has to be done through two different instruments and LCM SMS, GCM SMS. So it's, uh, it, it is very, um, you know, time consuming, but not that itself takes a while to one sample even. And then all the quality controls that we have for like blanks, nuclear spikes, and other kind of references before, in the middle, and at the end of every batch of client samples. 
to make sure that the instrument uh, is working properly. Daily outreach. Absolutely. There's a ton that goes into it. And, uh, and that's why it's so great to see, you know, uh, everyone on this panel that's doing testing as well. Absolutely. I kind of want to, I want to switch, switch over to you and ask, ask you a little bit about, you know, a, your opinions on what you've heard so far and your experience with, uh, cured resin specifically, you know, as, as a, as a more solvent based extractor, would you ever see the viability of letting a plant material cure plant material or, uh, isolated resin cure longer before you were to run it through, um, your extraction methodology to, to improve the flavor experience? Um, generally speaking, I would say no. Interesting. Um, I would prefer, and that's kind of how my original statement kind of in terms of that Instagram post came about was, was these prospective consulting clients and trying to facilitate some stuff. And, and I finally got to see a sample and it just blew my mind what they wanted to do and what they wanted to work with. And yeah, it had been sitting in a barn for like eight months and I mean, it could have been worse for sure, but if we're going to talk about trying to make a premium product, it's, it's just not, it's just not the way. So, okay. So the answer is somewhere between there and fresh. Now everybody can have their opinion of what that is and what that brings to the table. Um, for me, I, I kind of like to keep it to processed within two weeks to three weeks of being cut down, you know? We can get away with processing it a little bit before maybe you would call it done for bag ready. Um, and yeah, I, I don't want it sitting around very long, even, even vac sealed and out of light and everything else. I still think we, we can all acknowledge that there's a shelf life. And so I think that ties kind of into some of the things that we were talking about that I was listening to is, you know, to do with color what are these colors that are naturally occurring in the plant uh say at the time of harvest what are a result of aging you know um what are beneficial <clears throat> what which of these compounds actually degrade you know because uh, you guys talked about some aging you know i did extensive uh, aging like on the shelf room temperature uh going on three years plus where we had you know, like a traditional unfiltered, really unwinterized BHO, we or a uh, mixed mixed uh, butane propane, I should clarify, and um, then we had like heavily, heavily remediated to the point where the actual extraction was clear. Um, to you know, a few different things in between that, uh, kind of like wax plug. I'm sure when you're doing some. Some of your guys, R and D, you guys, I'm sure went through and seen all kinds of results and textures and different things, and, and so yeah, we did similar. We had similar sorts of experiences, and and what we did is aged all that stuff. And so, what kind of, what perspective it gave me was, um, perhaps color might be an indicator of of some of these these other things, like what what happens to. Um, these terpenes as they degrade, you know? Um, so what were your findings? Like, you know, can you go into more detail about 
your experiences for yeah so i found that like yeah any like hash um in general or uh, an un any more unrefined i'm going to call it compound and i will define that by something that's that is removed and purified some of these compounds that i think we're all talking about right now tended to degrade faster so this was rosin this was hash this was you know like we're talking i had 60 different samples sit there um and ones that had had uh purification to them i'm not i'm not and i'm not saying are better or worse you know i'm not talking about that but generally over long time periods tended to resemble more like what they originally were kind of like what rj said hey look this jar that's five years old i don't know how he stored it or what he's done with it but he's going it kind of smelt like that. So with the extraction types that we do now, and I think this again kind of ties back into what I was trying to say or, or kind of tie this whole color and, and some of this conversation to, to me is about longevity. Whether you're a patient making your uh, summers grow into uh, product to fucking last you for the whole year or this is something that's going to sit on a shelf or whatever, you know, if, if I can identify things to remove that are, or, or, or to avoid extracting to begin with that are going to lead to a longer enjoyment of that product, um, you know, then that kind of tied into what, like my perspective was, it wasn't always just about color specifically or the lack thereof. And I think I've talked with Rick about this. I think acetacidic acid or whatever probably isn't the right compound, Rick, but and I think somebody else mentioned the, the term uh, rancidity, you know, um, I think eventually, yeah, some of the, the, the either the, the extraction material or the extract itself uh, in whatever method it's done by, you know, starts to go through this process. And so my perspective is, how can I avoid that, you know, and does trying to prolong that affect the initial uh, characteristics, you know, so it's like, can we, can we give it some extra longevity and, uh, reduce the risk of degradation over time by the client who just leaves his jar open sitting on the table or happens to leave it sitting in sunlight that afternoon or whether your buddy does to your main stash that night and you're too big to notice or whatever it is. Um, you know, uh, you know, to kind of go back to what Alex was saying, what are these keratins specifically say, or, or some of these other alcohols, esters, whatever, are they beneficial? Do they contribute to the flavor? Do they contribute to the entourage effect, which on our previous show, I kind of told you, I don't, I don't believe in. And as far as my understanding, there really isn't any real scientific evidence, let alone to show that any of these pigments are related in that process whatsoever. Um, so, and then, and then, yeah, what are these colors? from the result of just oxidization you know those lear terpenes that rick has on his desk if he leaves the cap off they're going to go yellow they're going to go kind of kind of more uh not quite orange but darker yellows into orange and brown and um you know for me i think that yeah if you took that that cap a year from now and smelled it it's not going to be the same compound as it was at the start of that process and so as an extraction maker, whether, you know, whether we're talking solvent or solventless, like I'm, I'm not using that perspective right now, 
I think it's everyone's probably objective to make something that represents the plant, right? And we want to be able to have that representation of the plant last as long as possible and give the best medical value, you know? Um, Absolutely. I, I, what I want to do now is I want to switch it to, you know, either Chevy or, or Bird or, or um, you know, whoever would like to jump in on, on the other side of that coin. Oh, Chevy, boy. I saw you on mute. Please go ahead. So my question would be, is degradation a bad thing? Um, because, uh, again, we'll go back to the wine argument. Um, it starts at a color and it degrades as it reaches the desired aspect of what you consider nicely aged wine, whether that's being few years, many years, 10 years, or however you want to do it. So if, uh, on a hash matter, um, comparing just hash, um, there would be degradation, but that's half of the answer. The other half is how does it taste? What are the effects you're getting out of it uh, before ruling? Is that degradation a good or a bad thing for that particular product? Because um, one of the reasons some hashes might not hold up well, one of the uh, reasons would be that it has not been pressed properly and enough to create that amalgamation where that chemical changes that some of it might be degradation happening within the hash. So yeah, my question is, do you think degradation is always a negative thing? I do think that degradation is, is in general a bad thing, but I think that it's going to be hard to figure that out from an impure mixture like, like hash. If you take the BHO guys could, can maybe attest to this. If you take extremely pure. THCA, so no contamination that we can really identify, you, like recrystallize it five or 10 times so that the you know, solvent is clean when you're doing this. If you take that rock and you melt it down, it will look like ketchup after a couple of hours sitting in oxygen, where the oil itself, even if you get it as pure as possible, and especially when you get it very pure, once it's been decarbed and it's been exposed to oxygen, it will turn a pink color. And nobody, as far as I know, really knows what that is. People say it's the quinone uh, of THC, but it doesn't, it's not 100% consistent that it would be a quinone that's there. Or I, I'm at least not satisfied that someone has actually taken their oil and mm-hmm. shown that they can, I've never seen somebody scrape off that, that red line and test mm-hmm. it. Yeah, you know, here's my THC quinone. So I think that there is a certain element of just totally unknown color degradation that's happening that just nobody has really got a good handle on the moment, at least in my opinion. I, I haven't, I haven't found someone who can control it or prevent it. Uh, and I think that that's definitely something to work on. And Rick, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult to put a blanket statement to say that degradation is bad when it comes to aging. Like, you know, I've, I've got a whole bunch of aged apple balls here that they get softer. They, they taste better. I don't know if it's hash sheen. I don't know what it is. And also the fact that, you know, if, if I had five different cultivars, I just washed, put them in the temple balls, for example, they're all going to age or degrade or whatever different 
um, whether it's from the terpene profile, the flavonoids, whatever else that we're not sure, you know, higher birds ones are, are generally then are supposed to have more ashishine. Just got ashishine in, so we, we uh, I think about a week away, and we'll have that added to our terpene method so that I can actually take some of these old. I got, got a couple two-year-old, uh, yeah, October 19th, 20, uh, Temple Bowl for fresh and cannoli, part of that aging stuff we did. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to see it. Is there hashishine? What, what changed, right? Um, so I think it's just difficult to put a blanket statement. Every cultivar is different. Stop. I wanted to see if I could uh, share a picture with you guys. Uh, 710, doctor, could you share that picture of the layered extract in a jar? So basically here, what, what I'm doing is back to what you guys were saying is how can we increase the shelf life of this product? I've noticed the pigment is pretty, uh, bad soluble. So it, it always hangs out in the Delta nine layer. So right now, when he puts the picture up that one right there, so I took a BHO extract, super saturated, and I froze it in dry ice. After testing those fractions, the top was all my terpenes. That middle layer is actually was all the THCA. So you notice all the THCA has no color. The terpenes are also pretty fresh. All the bottom was the Delta nine layer, the stuff that had decarbed. And that's actually where all the pro oxidants were in, you know? So as, as the stuff starts to break down, it, it becomes like a cancer, like more, it starts to oxidize more and more and more. So it's a snowball effect. So when I take really fresh stuff and I do this to it, yeah. So what, when I take this stuff and I do really fre uh, fresh and I do the same thing to it, it'll just crash out all white, you know? So that tells me that darker portion that's holding the colors really where all the, the pro the oxidants are in. So if we were to remove that and then go into uh, aging the extract, it would actually uh, age a lot different because it doesn't have those pro oxidants in there speeding up that oxidation rate. Another thing I've seen guys with rosin do is they'll centrifuge it to get that white portion to get to the bottom and push all the terps to the top. So then they can remove those terps and age that rosin uh, THCA part and the terpenes basically. That way it doesn't oxidize so heavily as, as it's aging and curing. Interesting. Rosenbell, I wanted to go back to what we were talking about before. I know you had something to add on, on the aged resin front. Yeah. When it comes to aggregation, I don't, I think it matters on the method, method, like with uh, hashish. I don't think that aging process and process of degradation per se, I don't think we don't think wine degradates with we would we. Um, but I think when it comes to something like rosin that sits out in its jizz, I, jizz, I think that there. There is a deck happening that have rosin, rosin, and they do with a do with a lack of plant material. I'm not too sure on that, but it's it. I don't think every extract is the same way. Same way. Right. I'd love to get your take on this. You know, you you, yeah. I'll just let you go. Yeah. So my take's kind of similar to what I think Rosenbo was saying. Uh, um, I don't feel like rosin ages nor rosin can age um rosin degrades um i'm a big rosin guy very very much so love it but um 
feel like rosin as it um, is exposed to elements, it degrades. It doesn't have the matrix, the cell, the, the part around it that you filtered out. When you make the rosin, you press rosin in our rosin bags and you filter that out and you filter out the whole cell and the whole matrix and the whole uh, component that's around the, the resin and you remove the resin. And in a sense, in my mind, I like to refer to it as you've made good, you make grape juice when you make rosin and when you make hash, you you've made wine and wine can age and grape juice doesn't age. Grape juice degrades and it doesn't get better with time because of the matrix that is involved with the fermentation process needing to be in that, um, whole mass to, uh, create that fermentation process and, and aging, um, process to happen. Um, so without that, you're just getting, um, those factors to, to cause it to degrade. Kind of where are you at with that? Like, is that something where, you know, that makes you can align with, or, or is there a disconnect there where, where your experience leads you to, to think otherwise? Yeah. I mean, I think in some, some, uh, reasonable thought that the, the cell wall, that cellulose like layer of the, of the trichrome head itself itself is acting as this antioxidant layer. It's, it's preventing, uh, you know, just the environment from getting at it. But I think, I think the analogy of wine and juice and stuff is, is not kind of off. Like if you'd leave wine on the counter, it degrades. Right. If they didn't put sulfites in it, it would turn into vinegar fairly quickly. Um, and so my, my thoughts are the same with hash or BHO or any of them. It's, it's not, my perspective isn't just to, to BHO. I really want to make that clear. Um, if, if yes, if, uh, you know, uh, we had a method of storing hash really well and keeping it away like like a, a barrel of, of wine would be right and then you break it open well to me that's the same as opening a bottle of wine right you, you've started the the degradation like you've started the end of that the same as any jar of concentrate right if you open it and you're into it it's like it is what it is at that point yeah you can put it back in the fridge and try to long you know pre prevent that thing from from degrading further but um so yeah, I, I think the cell around it can can definitely help that. But I think when Chevy's talking about the process, like they're talking about squishing and heating and amalgamating. So I'm not sure that that cell is is part of that process. And I think if we actually talk about what goes rancid, it would be these fats, it would be these waxes, it would be some of these other compounds that myself personally I'm trying to remove to begin with because. Um, when we, when we actually start to, to look at the, like, da like what is dabbing wax? It's not gonna, it's, to me, it's not beneficial. It's not adding to the flavor. It's not adding to this quote unquote entourage effect. You know, um, I don't think it's adding to shelf life or, or, or helping that. So, but I can totally get my head around the idea that some people would maybe per prefer something that's got a more fermented esque thing um a different character a different depth of flavor yeah uh, absolutely 
Chevy know, for me, I sorry, go ahead. talked with Rick about this. Like I'm not a huge, like I didn't grow up smoking a lot of hash. I have an appreciation for it. Um, I have an appreciation for rosin. I have appreciation for BHO, but I don't have this nostalgic thing that kind of like pulls me really in either direction. Right. I grew up smoking a lot of flour. Um, but yeah, whether we're talking flour, BH or whatever, generally speaking, I don't think age helps the, the equation. Um, that, that's kind of, yeah, where I'm at with it. Chevy, I saw your, your mic on mute there. And I, I'd like to sort of ask you, do you, do you feel you're in line with those statements? And, and, and so far as that it's at the point now where it's, it's just a, a personal preference of, of a flavor profile, or do you think that there's much more to it than that? So on a North American standards, uh, Tim is absolutely correct. Um, because that's currently where the concentrate world is heading, not necessarily for everything white and, and, and clear and whatnot, but, um, the, the whole premise of refinement while the rest of the world, when they think of cannabis, it's mainly hash. So when it comes into the aging part, yes, the fat might degrade, but it would degrade if it does not get the proper heat treatment. And if the whole mass of hash pressed together did not have that sticky layer of resin, basically hash is being aged and encapsulated in a very thin film of resin oil, not, not, not just the fats and it encapsulate the whole thing the chemical process that happened within usually goes against or reduces the uh, uh the spoilage part tim is referring to and even after cracking a hash that was aging for a while um using solophane or reforming that resin ball where you let the resin ooze out again this is how you would usually maintain hash. And as Frenchy has quoted in his travels, he have tried hash as five, 10, up to 20 years in Nepal, but that was a, uh, Charas style, um, still hash. Um, they have different terpene composition because, um, Charas is basically made from live heads, but going back to the idea. The piece of hash is always in a good condition and safe if it's away from direct sunlight and fluctuating temperatures and not being rolled um, properly and pressed enough where you would have that sheen layer. Absolutely. So, so let's move it over. I want to ask Tom, Tom, you've been pretty quiet and just listening. Do you, what, what are you, hold on and then, and then Sorry, go ahead. I could, I was going to say, I can see birds stirring because, you know, he's, he's kind of like a Frenchie descendant. Um, so we got to circle back cause I can see no bird. Birds. He's keeping it quiet and everything. And, and I, I want to hear, cause if, if we can't have Frenchie here to talk about the science behind that, I think bird is maybe one of the next best things. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, I can, I could feel Frenchie in me, um, um, kind of losing it a little. Yeah. You, I, I mean, r rosin, of course, you know, is going to degrade it, 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 of course, exposed to the elements. And, um, I feel like the elements are really the factor you, your rosin can be preserved correctly and not degrade, 
but it's not going to gain a terpene profile is how I feel and how I've, I've been taught by Frenchie was that terpene profile when you do the um, aging process can acquire a terpene that was not found in the flower nor in the loose resin when it was tested. Now, when you age something, you, you have, like I said, that matrix that is involved in that. When you make rosin, you eliminate that matrix. And by doing that, you're going to allow something to be amazing and good, and you can preserve that. Um, but you can't make it develop a new terpene and, and, um, acquire what hashish can acquire. Um, is, is kind of how I feel. Rosin Bell, I, I know you raised your hand. You wanted to say something. Please jump in. Yeah, I was going to say the theme that, that, that comes around the hashish is protective, protective layer. It, it allows it me to, me to, I don't know if you want to call it fermenting, but to continue to transform side, side, protected, protected, side, own, side, own, and create these great beans that, that, um, that you pull up in age hashish, hashish weren't there, weren't there. Before it was before it was rolled. So interesting. That, I I I think that's really interesting. RJ, I want to ask you. You work with a lot of uh, large amounts of material, and and you have access to to more material than the average person sees. What what are your experiences with these matters as far as as aging goes? In your opinions on the topic so far. So I kind of get the other side of the coin for what, um, Mr. Kind Selections is talking about here. Um, I see a lot of material that is of different age, you know, gaps, and we also process for different customers. So I kind of get what I get and I have to work magic question mark. Uh, with it. So I kind of have to <clears throat> change my philosophy on the way that I approach my filtration. So at first in the pursuit of color, because I didn't understand selective filtration as much as I've kind of developed that knowledge now, thanks to guys like Waxplug, um, and like putting that knowledge out there, you know, hitting the forums hard. So definitely appreciate you on that, sir. Definitely made that knowledge a bit more accessible for, for guys like myself, uh, but I, I, I approached it with the thought that I would kind of not to liken it to distillate, but I wanted to keep the heads and the main body fraction and get rid of the tails. Cause the tails are going to be the things that are the most oxidative, the most, uh, would cause that kind of rancidity. Like we've been talking about would cause that kind of adverse flavor that, you know, we, we don't want either at, at the point of extraction or on the shelf over time. So CRC has allowed us to remove that. So talking about shelf stability, now we have a more consistent flavor profile over time. Yes, it does change. You know what I mean? That's the nature of the beast, but it's more palatable for a much longer period of time. With that said, um, and now with more selective, um, filtration and being able to target certain things. I think we're just going to be able to create a more, not a, I mean, we're, we're, we're filtering stuff here. So it can't be a full spectrum extract, right? But it's still, you know, a broad spectrum, but it's going to be a more shelf stable, more palatable, more 
customer-friendly product for longer. And I think that is a good thing for everyone. You know what I mean? Uh, there is definitely some guys that don't understand the media that we're working with and, you know, get filter bypassed, um, media bypass. And you hear all these, you know, nightmare stories of, of media silica in the, in the resin. And it's, it's, it's awful. You know what I mean? The knowledge is out there. People just got to educate themselves, but this is also the nature of the beast. There is good hash. There's bad hash. There's good extractors. There's less knowledgeable extractors. You know what I mean? There's people out here <clears throat> that are just trying to slap powders around. And then there's dudes out here that are trying to actually make a quality product. So. I did want to uh, add on to what Bird was saying. I, I, I completely agree. And I don't know what it is. Um, when you look at testing, we're getting like 90 to 97, 98% cannabinoids and terpenes on, you know, some of the best extracts around. What, what, there's not much left in there. And then you look at some of these like amazing temple balls that are say 55%, 60% total cannabinoids. 5% total terpenes. So not really sure what else is left. In it. We know that, you know, rosin pressed or DHO extracted and all that kind of stuff and whatever other kind of remediation that could happen with it. We're not really sure what we're losing there. What's as Bird mentioned, what is in these temple balls that's kind of helping it age? Because I definitely do believe that this age is like a fine line. Um, it's, uh, not just kind of not sure what it is, whether it's certain flavonoids, the anthocyanins, all that kind of stuff, right? That's it's open, right? Want to kind of figure out more what's what that is. And Ashashin too, but absolutely, absolutely. And I want to I want to touch on on that with actually with Adam in a little bit. But first off, I want to hear a little bit from Alex about. You're doing some really interesting stuff with being able to trap these pigments. And I mean, I think we've identified in this conversation that these pigments aren't just colors that they, they have a major influence on, on, you know, how we're perceiving these, these, uh, extracts. So I'd love to hear more about, about the project that you're working on. Oh, you're muted. You just got to hit that mute button. Sure. Thank you for letting me talk about it a little bit. No uh, so basically what we have is a. Um, we built a sensor to try to get ourselves a little bit, um, to have a little bit more of a consistent view of what kind of pigments that we're dealing with. And basically the, the way that the sensor works is it takes the idea that George, um, put out there earlier in the presentation or earlier in the talk about, um, using a UV light to excite the pigments inside of the, uh, powders. So basically using the, the properties of the, of the pigments themselves, we shine a UV light on them and, uh, use a, uh, a light detector to see what kind of, uh, light spectrum is being generated by that sample. Um, if you go to the next slide or one of the other photos, so here's a, a photo right here of what the, the kind of spectrum looks like, um, coming off of the sensor. Um, on the far left, you have the excitation light, which is a UV light. And then to the right of that, you have uh, lower energy light. Um, in the blue, green, and yellow spectrum. And basically what this light is, is it's, it's, it's the, uh, uh, the light generated by carotenoids when they're excited by UV light. And it's really kind of low hanging fruit. And it's kind of lucky that they do this, um, 
the, the, you know, nature kind of designed them as in a way that allows them to take in energy and then pass on that energy. When they're in a plant, they're usually passing it on to a photocell for photosynthesis. But when they are removed from those, those cells, they are still able to pass on to absorb light and then pass that light, um, onto other things. And so they, they end up releasing photons of light that are lower energy and we're able to detect them here. Um, so the carotenoids, which are red to our eyes will glow blue and the chlorophyll, which is green under visible light will glow red. Um, and basically, you know, you might think that you can, you can differentiate pretty well with your eyes, but it, it's actually very hard to tell the difference between a sample that has all blue light and then all blue light and just a little bit of red light in it. And the idea is we use the sensor to, uh, see down very, uh, very sensitive levels of chlorophyll, um, and also carotenoids, but in general, carotenoids are acceptable in our industry. Um, and chlorophyll is the one that we want to avoid to a degree. So the sensor basically just gives you a way to, to have a 2d readout of, or like a, a JPEG image readout of what your spectrum is. And then, um, you can save that for future use. Uh, if you go to the next slide, so this is what the program looks like. Um, it's basically just a USB, uh, attached to a, or USB connected to a computer or USB a, and then fire up the program and you've got a, uh, a way to test your extracts for their pigment concentrations. Um, it's not quantitative. It's a very qualitative thing. Um, but it is, you know, it's a technology that has been used to quantify, uh, things like chlorophyll and things like carotenoids in other industries, um, qualitative how so, uh, it's qualitative in the sense that like you look at it and it will give you a two dimensional spectrum, but it's not going to tell you a milligram per gram of a certain compound. Um, you have to take into account the fact that, you know, you did a dilution. Usually you'll take a sample, like say you want to see what kind of pigment is in a small piece of, or a small sample of extract. You'll take a sample of it about 0.2 grams and dilute it into solvent and then put it into the tracker. If it's a more pigmented extract, you have to use more of it. And so it's not something that's going to necessarily give you a quantitative number, but you can kind of be quantitative with it if you keep good notes and you, uh, record what all the concentrations are going in, but it's not even really necessary to be quantitative. If you see some red light, um, on the sensor, then you know, you have some chlorophyll there. And if your goal is to remove all the chlorophyll, then you can, you can do that. The, the relative height, if you go back one, one slide, um, if you take into account the concentration of the sample and then the relative height of these peaks, you can kind of get an idea for how much of the chlorophyll you need to remove. You know, if you imagine that the chlorophyll was below, was, was half the height, it's going to have less chlorophyll in the sample. Um, but there are limitations because that's, that's actually not necessarily always true. It could be that the chlorophyll is just degraded and there are still, you know, chlorophyll breakdown products that are not fluorescing that are still in the sample. But again, it's kind of a qualitative indicator where you can use it to tell that you have some contamination and then you do something to your extracts and use it again to see that you've removed that contamination. Um, and so like if you were to carbon filter this extract, you'd want to see afterwards, uh, or it's, let's do silica, which is going to remove the polar compounds. Chlorophyll is not polar, but it's more polar than THC. So we look for this compound to be removed. 
and for us to have a high yield of uh, of material coming through without with with mostly just the slight being generated on the does it work on all uh, concentrates and extracts? Yeah, it works. Anything that's a clear sample that's been diluted and is clear. So like if you take a hash sample and you put it into heptane, right into, let's say into ethanol, it's going to be cloudy. And so that will distort the image. You have to actually filter the, the liquid, um, using like a syringe filter. Um, it's not too much of a sample prep compared to the type of stuff that Rick is dealing with, um, <laughs> with, you know, all kinds of, of matrices and matrices and like, and, and different, you know, big expensive instruments. This is really just to dissolve it and get it clear, put it in the instrument and get a quick spectrum for what you're looking at. Um, and this was how we figured out that when we were doing, um, when we were doing some, uh, uh, ice water extractions, we were getting chloroplast, we were not getting chlorophyll, um, because we were able to take water that fluoresced with this red light and we were able to filter, um, over just a particle remover and we were able to completely remove all of the red light from the water, which means that they were particles suspended in the water and it was not, um, and it wasn't dissolved chlorophyll and to the, to the human eye, it just looked like two samples of normal water. But one of them was glowing red and one of them wasn't. Uh, so that's kind of the use on the ice water hatch side is just to look out for chloroplasts and to make sure you don't have too much contamination. Um, usually ice water hash is way lower pigment than, um, than butane extraction because these are fat soluble compounds. Um, and like you said earlier, you have to bathe the entire plant in that solvent. So there's much higher likelihood of, of getting these contaminants. I would guess that poorly made ice water hash could have a lot of contamination too. But, um, we actually saw when we were using this really remarkable consistency between the micron sizes of the bags where we, the, the lab watched the same material four different times and collected three different micron sizes, like a 220. I'm not, a, I'm not an ice hash extractor. Um, so I can't remember what exactly the microns were, but they collected three different ones. And on all of the washes, the bags looked similar across the washes for the same micron. So the 220 in the first wash looked the exact same, had, had the same ratio of pigment concentrations as the first wash, um, or as the, as the 220 micron on the second wash and the third wash and the fourth wash, then the other bags had a different balance of pigment and was consistent across all of them where these these peaks were significantly similar, um, which was cool to see. I don't know exactly what that means, but it, it did have, um, it definitely has an application for ice water extraction, um, as well as the butane ex extracts, which it's ways it's really hard to avoid chlorophyll with butane extraction for sure. So anyways, that's what it is. It's a pigment tracker. Very cool, man. Yeah. Could you, uh, could you see different pigments in the, in the first, second, third watch when you were checking that out? So they, levels or? yeah, it was different. Um, no, 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 no. So it was actually very similar pigment levels. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think that that was because the yield was decreasing and partially the pigments are just, or that the pigment is like, it's, it's chloroplast being caught in the yield 
of it's almost like it's a absorbent bed of trichomes where you've got just like a like if you just if you imagine piling up a whole bunch of trichomes and then you pour chloroplast on top of it the chloroplast isn't just going to pass through it there's some physical barrier there that's preventing the chloroplast from actually exiting the bag i think that that's why i think it was the mechanical how much is being held back by the bag itself is the thing that determines how much of that contamination is there and there was a they had a really tight system for their extraction down where they they seemed to have a really good like even on the fourth extraction it was blonde coming out of the out of the system um it was just less of it well i'll have green water but then have beautiful blonde hash because you sprayed really clean water through yeah yeah so the first water that comes off is usually it's going to be like uh there and there is a water soluble yellow pigment that can be rinsed off with the ash. Um, when we did that experiment filtering out the chlorophyll and we're able to see that it was particles of chlorophyll, the yellow pigment was not removed. So the yellow pigment made it all the way through. And that's good and bad. I mean, it's good because you can just wash the trichomes with water until they stop giving off that color. Um, I mean, it's just bad because it will get caught in the, in the water. So you have to deal with it, but it's, um, yeah, there, that was a, that was some interesting stuff. And just overall though, you know, you could, you can, the amount of pigment in the ice water hash that's made well, it's way lower than the butane hash that's made well, um, for sure. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so, honestly, yes. George is a, a little bit of an exception. We did do, we tested his stuff and his stuff had almost no chlorophyll in it. They were using propane. Um, which maybe is a slightly there's something to know, but I, I've tested plenty of propane extracts that have a lot of chlorophyll too, so it could be. Word, what, why do you th why do you think that is? Because um, of how cold it was, and the... okay, Mike's going out. Oh, did you hear you? Um. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I know we filtered one of the runs. I don't know if that's the one you checked. If it was the one that got filtered, then that's, that would make sense. But if it was the one that wasn't filtered, it would be a... It might have been that you guys had a CRC going. We, had, we, we did two runs that day. We did one that was filtered and one that wasn't. Um, the one that wasn't came out more orange. The one that got filtered came out more brown. And what that meant was that the absorbents had took the or the carotenoids, the oranges, and the chlorophyll off. So that's what we ended up with more brown. The filtered extract as opposed to the not filtered had a lot more orange. But um Yeah, I mean one of the limitations to this technology is that like it doesn't give you like there's a billion uh, there's there's a a long list of things that will look the exact same on this sensor as chlor as carotenoids. Um it's a, it's just blue light. It's literally, you know, if, you, if anything that shines blue when you shine a UV light on it could be tricked into thinking it looks like it on us. So that's definitely one of the limitations. But I mean, at some point we just have to go, you know, we're, we're extracting grass and there's a certain number of compounds that we would expect there to be. And we just have to go after the most obvious ones at some point and like assume that they're non-degrading and they are like 
that there is a use case of just like growing weed perfectly and undegraded and then extracting it and dealing with just plant compounds that are there. And, um, yeah, I think the carotenoids, xanthophils and chlorophylls are the, for propane extraction and butane extraction are for sure the most important ones. And also for ice hash. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. but now I was gonna say, but it, this is not, this isn't the end all, the answer for sure. This is a quick test for us in the lab. If Rick, Rick, if you can start offering cannabis, uh, carotenoids and, uh, chlorophyll testing, it would be epic. Um, you know, just cause to have people who are experienced with the matrix being able to do those tests would be, would be really, and I don't think we would even need to do that many. I doubt that it's that variable between plants, you know, probably a couple dozen tests get a pretty good idea of what the compounds are. Um, so. That would be really exciting to, to be able to send you samples and to be able to send you like isolated samples. So like, this is a, this is better. These are like an isolated carotenoids fraction. Wow. See how, I wonder if I can get some. Wow. That's super rent. Yeah. Like a mix of carrot and tomato juice there. <laughs> so. That's not a good play, but, um, basically like a, one drop of this stuff in like a jar of distillate can turn, it can, you can start to see it. Maybe not one drop, but you know, it's a very, very small amount that you need and it can end up causing, it smells like carrots. I swear to God, it smells like carrots. Um, but basically this was just isolated from a non-polar, from a propane extract. And I could send you this, I mean, it's old. And so maybe it's transforming in the jar a little bit, but you know, we can, we can test samples that have also been isolated. So you don't have to deal with the, the cannabis matrix and looking for like a trace 0.1% compound. Um, yeah, no, that I would definitely be interested in that. That seems really cool. I haven't done much research on, 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 uh, on toys. Lavanoids definitely done a bunch. Hash machine. I know someone is commenting about UVA me and some of the research I did on hash machine as we were trying to find some ways to make that standard for us. It it uh they meant or some research out there was showing that it seemed to be higher in the traditional Middle Eastern hash, and they think it's had something to do with the sunlight, like some apparently some of them are taking um, the flower dried it like on the roofs and stuff like that, mm. or, or just yeah. a lot more sunlight exposure. And they were saying that that is part of the key of mercy converting to hashish. Why there's a certain taste. Yeah. That the, um, sorry, sorry, fruits, fruits, like the, oh, that was expelled earlier. There's like a, Current and raining more red, more red in the sun, in the sunlight. Is that what it would be, would be hatched than the orange is, the more, the more it's bringing nutrients, I suppose, or transforming? I think that the sunlight idea in causing it to darken is a really good one because sunlight has very high energy light that we don't see. And, you know, if you dry a plant indoors under fluorescent lights or under just normal light, it might be different than drying it outside where there's sunlight that's got a ton of UV. We've taken samples of uh, water clear distillate that's totally fresh out of a still so it doesn't have any other oxidation and aimed our 10 watt flashlights, UV flashlights at it, and it'll turn purple. 
like a deep purple, purple kind of color and not on the, the top as a, like throughout the sample, it will turn purple. Um, so I don't know. My point being that, it, you know, THC obviously has some kind of effect where that happens. I would imagine that all of these compounds, there's a layer of like, if we did all of our processing in the dark, <laughs> would it be different? And we could probably look at all of our, a lot of these compounds and see how the UV light is affecting them for sure. And it could even be like UVC or UVA or, or UVB, you know, like UVC light that's used for like sterilization is way higher energy light than what we're dealing with here. So what happens to Delta nine when you leave that at it for a period of time, um, maybe it turns red and yeah, we could, we could probably make a lot of different colors. Um, Mike, what did, what did your experiences been with this? You say Brian or I know I was, I, I think kind has had some experience using fluorescence as well. And I'd love to hear uh, his, his experiences. Yeah, <clears throat> I've seen the purple, just not even, uh, um, applying UV light, just having Delta nine at high temperature with sudden exposures to oxygen yeah uh atmosphere and just like yeah i've, I've seen it come off yeah it's the it's, colors of purple we think it's a, like a similar kind of purple but it happens kind of like homogeneously through the, like where you aim the uv light at instead of being kind of with the oxygen interface um and maybe i just need to go and look to see in the literature is there anything obvious that's uv yeah. maybe it is the quinone they were talking about, and then it would be very, I think it would be useful to look for that in the hash samples as well. Cause like with, with pure samples, when we're dealing with like super pure distillate or super pure, like THCA, you know, if you look at it wrong, it changes colors and it sounds like the hash, you know, there's some indicators of quality that are based on the colors. So maybe that, you know, this is the, that's what we need is to come together both sides of it for sure. Um. Yeah, we're, I'm not aware of when it changes color at all. It's when distillate and THCA does, mostly. Well, so anyway. you want to jump in quick? Yeah, so coming up, how, how we, we describe, describe degradation, degradation, and it, it did not by color, because we know that, we know then that some change the change the code, but we don't consider it degradate, degrade, and indoor doesn't change from it says it says an amber is quivery color get color get indication then absolutely sorry i i, I might not have caught all that but i i wanted to ask um uh, adam you just got back from judging the the masters of rosin and, and you were specifically in the i believe looking at mostly melt um, all weekend, were you correlating color with quality? Can you talk a little bit about that judging process that you, you undertook? What'd you say? Mostly melt all weekend. Were, were you look, were you look, were you judging rosin or were you judging, uh, was it rosin or was it melt that you were judging? No, it was all rosin and one oh, person entered, um, who's still anonymous to me, entered a pressed Moroccan hash, yeah, which had like a nice hazy sort of smell to it, but it wasn't rosin. So kind of had to judge it lower compared to the rosin, but, um, yeah, no. So we were definitely, I definitely judged rosin and, uh, we graded it first by just looking at it, or at least I did. 
um, and categorize just, <clears throat> just literally the appearance. So I, I, I put the shades all together, the different shades. I put the crumbles with the crumbles and the textures with, you know, all the different textures and the fresh press together. Um, and then I went for to smelling everything, you know, so first I just judged the appearance and then the smell, but, uh, so I don't know that has to do with pigment, right? The appearance. No, absolutely. Were you able to make any correlations between, you know, what, what, what was appearing, you know, the, the lightest was that commonly correlating with the, the highest quality that was ending up in, in your, in your, uh, books. I wouldn't just say lightest, but <clears throat> most appealing overall, almost plasma, like clean and then also clean on the dabber. So I guess I should just explain the different uh, categories that we judged. We did, uh, or that we rated, um, and I did a 0.5 to five scale rating. Um, and it was appearance, smell, uh, taste, and then the after dab. And so like, after you dab it, what, like all the kind of a nuance of different things, like how dirty did it look on the nail? Maybe there was there a blowout, you know, so you know, obviously you rate that differently than, than not. And then, um, just various other things like, um, what does the, does the flavor truly translate or did it hurt your throat or all this other things that kind of, the, that's the after dab, or at least that's how the, the, we judged this event. And, um, I thought that was kind of cool. A new, um, that, that was a new rating for, for the, this, this new, this 2022's masters. Um, but yeah, I kind of went off there and forgot about what. No, 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 that's really cool, man. I know you've, you've kind of been traveling and you're a little bit jet lagged. I think, you know, the last thing I want that for, that for you to touch on is, is something that you touched on briefly already, but, but your views on, on amber trichomes and, and them actually just being, uh, uh, refractions through to the, to the, I believe it's, is it the, the disc cell or the, is that the disc cell of the, the gland? Yeah. So the disc cells are what those, um, they even, they even call them a, ma a matrix of cells that some kind sometimes look concave, but they're at the bottom of the gland head. Um, and then there's stipe cells, basal cells, but those are a part of the elongated dermal cells of the stock, um, mostly in the stipe cells. Sometimes you'll, those, those will break off and have chlorophyll and stuff, but usually the disc cells from what I've seen are what you see turn amber. I have some pictures. Um, I, I didn't realize that we would talk about this or else I would have sent them, but you can literally just see the amber is the disc cells and they're just degenerating. And I don't mean degenerating in a bad way. I just mean. I feel like there's a certain ratio of gland heads that should be, um, for of those disc cells to be degenerated. And that means that they're in their end of their life cycle and they're about to burst open. They're ready for like an animal to walk by and rub against them and spread their, um, whatever they've been stored, whatever is stored inside of them. And so, uh, I think that gland heads and contiguous gland heads should be in other words, there's a percentage of these amber kind of like to people say you want to pick it when there's a certain amber percentage. Well, that's not exactly true. I think that there's a Goldilocks zone of a certain amount of amber, and that also is determined by what kind of plant it is. So what kind of 
um, uh, flowering time, you know, like if it's a shorter flowering time and it's degenerating faster, you might want to chop it before it's really turning super amber. You might want to chop it when it's around 10, but if it's a long flowering, uh, thin, uh, thinner variety leaf, there might be, you can, you can go more amber with it. Um, but I, with amber, I don't mean anything bad by it. I feel like we kind of put certain terms on these things and think certain ways on it, but really it's, uh, it's, a uh, fucking crazy amount of shit going on inside that gland head. The disc cells are definitely where those proteins and everything is going. It's secreting, it's secreting these vesicles and the, that is the oil. You can think of it as the oil inside the gland head. And, um, that definitely is a cellular structure that de cellularly degenerates with time. Absolutely. And well, that refracts light. Well, do you, do you, do you agree with what Adam's saying? Is that what your experience is as a cultivator and a hash maker? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I don't want it ever to go, well, sometimes I like to go deeper into the amber for the effects, but I usually don't go too deep into it. Maybe like a five to 10% thing on there. And then I want to pull. Yeah. Right. I, I know you're pressed for time. Do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I hear you guys really talking about how you determine on when you harvest according to the, uh, the amberness of a trichome. And, uh, I just wanted to touch on the fact that, 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 uh, uh trichome is the secondary metabolism to a plant, to the, to the, to the cannabis plant. And that really has nothing to do with harvest or does it not correlate to harvest time, um, the flower itself, it would be like looking at the trichome of a fruit to determine on when it was done. And you don't do that. You look at the fruit to tell you when the fruit is done. Now the fruit will tell you when the trichome is at its most robust time to harvest. Now, amber can be controlled by many different things. Could be light. Like we said, your outdoor trichomes are going to be more amber. So you don't want to pick according to your amberness of a trichome, nor look at that according to when and give you an association of when to harvest. Because like I said, the secondary metabolism is never anything you're supposed to look at, nor do we look at when we're growing any other vegetable or fruit that has a trichome. We don't look at the trichome for, for when to harvest our, our, our fruit or vegetable. It's, it's according to when the actual pro product is produce produces is ready. So I, I do look at the whole flower and I use that as a reference before I look at the trichomes, but my final goal is to isolate those trichomes. So that's when I was really focusing. Now I'm looking at the really focusing in on that trichome at the end. Also the ripeness of the floral cluster is associated with the ripeness of the trichomes is something I believe too. Uh, true. Rosenbell, were you trying to jump in there? I know, you know, you've got some, some experience cultivating as well. Um, I want to mention also the insulin to the neck of the track of the trichome as well as the indication of the trichome. Um, so the thinner, the thinner that it gets like a fruit tree. If you shake a tree, the tree, the ripest fruit fall off first. And it's very similar with. Uh, trichomes, a trichome, the ripest ones, ones will snap the fastest. 
Yeah, I would agree with her on that one a lot. That's where, that's where I tell people to look at is not at the, the amberness of a trichome. Look at the abscission where the trichome stem is cutting in on the trichome head and, and creating that abscission to come in and allow, like she said, for like Rosabelle said, for the fruit to fall off when it's most ripened. That would be a better indication of what you would want to scope is that abscission on the trichome, not the amberness of the trichome necessarily, because you could have that abscission happening according to any one of those variables. And then that would be your guide to when the resin is fully developed inside that trichome. Adam, what are your thoughts on this as somebody who's studied trichome structure? Uh, well, you know. I agree, but I don't think that you should solely go off of the amber look because there's such a dynamic um, amount. Um, there's a diverse, cannabis is so diverse in its shades and hues um, of colors. You know? So, so it would be like amber. Where you're, you're seeing the, the actual neck of the trichome slightly uh, come in and, 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 and get ready to, to, for the gland to break away. No, I agree that there's that abscission portion. Yeah. Um, they even, you know, there's some plant journals that I've read that they literally refer to it as an abscission where the gland head breaks off of the stalk. And uh, Frenchie has referred to a lot of um, that science too. There's some older. Uh, science I wanted to touch on earlier from the seventies and they, um, uh, caught some people smuggling pressed hash. And so they studied that hash, but they also prepared dry sift in their labs in the seventies. They had dry floral clusters and they ground them up and they like quickly tried to sieve and they got gland heads, you know, and then contaminants and, and stuff and stocks different, you know, uh, levels of quality, but also just a sift that wasn't pressed. Right. So they were studying how, I mean, the whole thing was exposing this different, these different kinds of hash to temperatures and different lights and, uh, different, um, storage containers, I believe I'd have to go back and check it out and I can try to link you guys in it, but, um, that's you know, they, they, it does, you know, when you press it, it does make a skin around it and the THC is, is stored inside that. And the, the skin doesn't have much THC at all, if any, but inside it, it's being stored. Um, and what is the skin? Uh, like? Slightly pressed sift stores a little bit better than sift. That's just off, obviously open to the air. Right. So there's all this different things that were going on with it, but just wanted to touch on that for a little bit, but it was cool. Yeah, and on, on that same subject too, when we were talking about the abscission created uh, and how important that is, is uh, there's uh, um, the underneath part of the trichrome head where that abscission is, has to develop a membrane that is w what they would consider to be waterproof. Um, water does actually can transfer in and out of a trichrome, but it's still considered waterproof kind of like your mouth or something when you closed it and jumped into a pool, you know what I mean? It would still be waterproof, but you could still shoot water through it. Um, now that part has to develop and it's not there the whole time, just ready to go and developed until that abscission has happened. Now, if you don't watch that and, and wait for that to happen and you're going by other factors, 
and you don't use that as your factor, you could remove trichome heads. Now, this won't be as a big of a deal if you're using a solvent because you'll still be able to wash the whole material. You're not really worried about removing the head. Now, but what we're doing is washing. We need to remove that head off very, very gently. Now, if it doesn't want to come off and it tears off or it tears some of that stem off, it's not going to be waterproof. And if we're going to wash it in our bags and we're going to actually lose that, that trichome. So it's very important that we go for that abscission as our biggest factor for washing because of multiple factors, not just for, for, um, for that, the fact that we need that waterproofness, but for the other factors, for the resin that's going to develop inside that head, it's just a very big factor that I like to try to put in people's heads and think about, because it's something that is not really thought about in the, in the solvent based community, because they're not really even worried about that. No huge facts that you just dropped here, uh, Brett, like can, can you, that you just changed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how we should be looking at harvesting, fuck the color of your, the heads. Don't worry about your leaves. Yes, take out your microscope, but you're focusing on the wrong part. It's like, bro, you're looking at the asshole. You're not looking at the, you're not like, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's a completely like different way. Sorry. What did you want me to bring up? Can you, can you bring up Adam's uh, video of the image of that land? And I want to ask Bert if, if he thinks that's a premature uh, land. And that's what we're seeing is basically. Where Adam, you should talking about the one with the releasing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I so love hearing your thoughts on this. Uh, an awkward part of it, you know, so much between glass. I just got that, but there's, you know, if you were to flip it around, it, you know, it can totally be darker. That's what I'm trying to say. It's like, it's that disc cell and that's where the abscission is. There's a, there's this disc cell. And what he's saying is the abscission is this, you know, you don't, the, you, we can't really even see the disc cell in here anymore it's so um it's been just yeah that's not um yeah so, another question. you you were saying the, that the, the disc cell definitely cutenizes it a certain white part of its life cycle the trichomes life cycle and the, if you read this cuticle development paper on trichomes you learn that the disc cell is what first forms, you know, the, the, the first thing that you see cellularly is two different cells, you know, first one, but then it breaks into two and, um, cellularly, um, starts to, uh, can, why can't I think of the word divide, um, replicate anyways, the disc cells eventually Secrete? No, I, I don't know where I was. Sorry. There's something playing in the background and I totally forgot what I was talking about, but they are what, um, yeah. See how at a different angle, it's a totally different color. Yeah. And when it's clear, it, uh, that's an awesome picture. It's acting as a, it, it can be amber, but then it can be clear. It just depends on what angle you're looking at. Eric Nug shots for the wind. You can see the disc cells here. You can see. Uh, where like it's kind of tucking in underneath at the stalk there. Uh, and kind of amazingly, depending on how you're looking at it, you can see his light and you can see what's going on in the room reflected. I remember what I was going to say too. So at a certain part of the life cycle, before it, before anything's being secreted, it's the pre-secretary uh, phase of the trichome. Yep. The disc cells cutenize and, the, and then the disc cells start to release 
the vesicles and then the vesicles can also contribute to the sheath of the trichome and it, and it, well, those last two weeks of flowering starts to exponentially grow and fill and store secondary metabolite inside of it. And it's all being secreted by those disc cells and being, you know, pharmacologically derived from them because of the proteins and other good stuff that's doing things that I can't explain. Tom, you had something to add. I was just going to make the connection that Adam was saying earlier that amber comes from the disc cell, which we're also looking at the disc cell for the abscission. So in a way, it's almost correlated. We're waiting for that disc cell to kind of start being able to break off. Like an apple. You can, you can have trichomes that are still clear within the incision is, is all the way through it. So the amberness doesn't particularly have a lot to do with how ripe, how trichome is. Because you can, if you get in there with a microscope, you can see different colored heads at different rate, different ripeness. Some might be, be completely orange and ripe, while some of them might be clear and still have the same incision. Yeah, like on that picture that you just keep showing those trichome, if you were to like scan that over a one millimeter, you would have saw a trichome with a different amount of uh, amberness to it. And, and so, so then that tells you right there that that's not really what, what, what you want to use as your factor, because I mean, where are you looking at on that, that, that part of it? Because there's going to be your amber trichome, like right next to that one that was like in between, like you kept showing where it wasn't at all. And it had some amber to it. You'd look at the one right next to it. There'd be an amber one. But I, you're seeing consistency in the abscission. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. That's very. One, one thing too, uh, I want to add that in that image that, uh, Brian just had up where Frenchie suggests went to harvest for hashish production. We're actually working with, uh, his wife right now. We're going to announce in a big study we're doing. We're going to have three different cultivars of the harvest four different, uh, four different times, and then testing that, um, and we're going to do, then we're also making hash out of that each of those four times and it's going to be testing in aging that for upwards of a year. So it's going to be just over 400 individual tests. Um, so it's going to be quite a big project for us. Uh, we're really excited to announce it. We're talking about it. Figured I'd bring that up. And that's very uh, cool. We get some cool data out of it. Right? That's really cool. Exactly. We're talking. That's really cool. Really appreciate you doing that. And that, that means a lot to hear. And Frenchie and I would always talk about that and how important that is. Like, like I would, we always talk about is like, I could tell you how close to harvest you harvested your stuff when I make temple balls with it. And, and then I know, I know how close it was to when that resin was developed fully. But I can't tell you before that. I can only tell you once I've made temple balls with it and all my temple balls come out and I can start telling you by how they, how they're coming out, the, 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 the ripeness of your trichome, not, not the amberness of it. And that was a factor that a lot of people look at. You know, what I like to tell people is like, like some of these guys were saying too, is it's like, it's a good tool to use once you become accustomed to genetics and you grow it and you're so like in tune with cultivating that, then you might be able to use the amberness because you've grown it before. And then, you know, so many nuances that you're using in your head to, to add that as the factor of why you're being able to use 
the factor of you're saying like, well, I've grown this one before and it's resin is fully developed when I see 10% trichome amber. You might be able to use that as somewhat of a replicating effect, uh, a factor and using that as a tool in your tool belt. But as long as you understand the background of it and know that that is not what your show should be looking for, 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 for ripeness of fruit, nor would you look at any fruit and tell when it's trichome was ripe, you wouldn't look at a tomato and go, well, let me see what that trichome looks like <laughs> when that tomato was ready. You would not do that. So Bert, when you're saying that when you would make temple balls and then you could tell when it was, you know, say premature or not, would the, would you find that those would age differently and also would they taste differently? Yes, dramatically. Um, and you'll know, like the ones that were the mature ones, they will age immediately. And within three months, you will see a transformation that you won't see in gears with the ones that were not. And, really? Uh, that quick? Harvested. Three months? Three months. You will see it. In three months, it will cause the temple ball to push oil out of the cellophane uh, and from the temple ball, push it out of it and to where it'll like ooze out. And I thought minimum 10 having, months to a year. Like that's what, that was my thought process. Three months is when you see actually a terpene, the hashishian terpene he's talking about, Rick has been talking about, that terpene is developed in three months. And then it's like I said, been found only in aged um, hashish. It is not found in rosin that has sat for three months in its perfect climate or any climate, you don't what receive. Do you, what are you correlating with with that? What what do you correlate with the terps being pushed out of the, the temple? So that, that's when the fermentation process is happening correctly and, and it's building pressure like when you would do wine or something. And, and all this has to be done in a very controlled environments because otherwise degradation will happen and not. And it won't be just like he was saying before. You can't just think you're going to store a temple ball in regular temperatures and regular environments and have that age correctly, nor would you expect a, a bottle of wine to do the same thing. And the secreting is the oils, it'll build pressure. Now, if you tie those up like Frenchie taught us, you tie a knot and you flip it over and you tape it. And so the twist is held down when you do it. Okay. Now that's how he shows us how to do it. Now, when you do that, you'll squeeze it. When it's three months, it'll be filled with like gas. It'll be buffed up. And, and that is when it's happening, the process. Now, if you take your pro your plant uh, and harvest it at all mature, that process will not happen in three months. And if you do it, it all too mature, that process will never happen. And it will always be a dry temple ball. You will never have that full fermentation happening because there's so much of this matrix that needs to be there that you will lose in that process that, that, that it's just so delicate to do. We, we don't. We don't. It's not really that easy to just explain. There's so many variables going on and you have to do it right. And the ripeness of the fruit is the biggest problem. And that's the biggest factor like that, 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 like I said, in three months, you'll have a complete transformed temple ball that will be a wet gooey ball that is like sugary wetness that is hard uh, and, and has different fl floral profile, aroma and taste that you can taste the developing and, and. And it's a developed flavor that is gained a terpene, not like some things like you take rosin and let's say you like it as it sat. Well, you like the fact that it lost the terpene, that garlic terpene, it might've lost that you don't like or whatever. It, it didn't develop a terpene, but it lost what you didn't like. And now you like it. So you think it has gotten better, but it actually just lost the terpene that you didn't like. Wait, so, so Bert, on that point, cause you're stimulating a new question for me. So do you think, 
uh, a plant harvested maybe a little early, maybe exactly on time and maybe a little late, how does the rosin degrade at different levels and then produce a better quality terpene or effect the same way a temple board? Not in the uh, same way because it's not going to be the same, but will it have like that same difference? No, no, actually, I don't see that difference because like um, I see more, like a temple ball, if I make it from product that is a little bit taken early, it'll make a clean rosin that will still be good because you refine it down so much to make rosin and it doesn't need that matrix to be able to, to, to secrete that resin that is there and, and refine that down and give that to you. Um, but a temple ball needs this matrix to be there for it to actually create this aging effect for it to do like the pressure to be able to build that pressure in that gas. That's a lot going on inside there for it to have just done. And so, um, I don't know, I don't see that at all with rosin because like I said, it'll just be in, 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 it'll be actually a little lighter color and it'll just have a little bit less flavor. You know what I mean? Because. Terpenes are the color in the sense this, this, like we've been talking about. And so, um, it, it, if it's premature, your rosin will look a little bit better, but if I have the same strain that's harvested just at the right time, it'll be a little more darker yellow, a tiny bit. And I'm not saying dark yellow. I'm just saying a very translucent, very appealing to the eye yellow, but it, it won't, won't have that same problem that it will have with a temple ball. That's why Frenchie was always so adamant on harvesting it at the right time. And that three-day window, he would always talk about, you have three-day window to where it's the perfect time to harvest the resin. And, and temple balls are so delicate that if, if you could hit that three-day window, all my temple balls that I make, all different, all my five washes or seven washes or 10 washes will all be very elastic and have that, that suppleness to them right when I make them and age. And, and you can tell they'll be secreting that oil like that one that Rick just showed us in, in the cellophane, like, Classic, it's, you can see it just shooting off in there, and that will be happening only with the ripeness happening. And it's a direct correlation. And what, so when we're dealing with material that's been taken too long and you're not finding that uh, chemical reaction happening, do you have a theory on what is absent from that gland that, that has been ran too long outside that window? I, that I, I call it the life. I don't know what it is, but it's the life of it. It's gone. Yeah. It's lost its life. And, and there's many ways I feel like it can be sucked out there. You know, oxygen is a way to lose it. Heat is a way to lose it. And uh, time is a way to lose it. And so, um, my biggest factors I see is heat and, um, and then uh, of course oxygen would be second to my mind, but, but heat will break that down really fast. And so like when it happens, when, when it's been overly mature you'll see that as well when when you have an overly mature trichome it'll have the same problem as an under mature trichome where like it won't have the elasticity when you make the temp ball it won't want to stick together and roll into a temp ball it want to like crumble into dust and and it's very easy to be able to tell when their plant's been harvested right when you make resin and uh, into temple balls and that's why i feel like there's a important connection that we need to have with the farmer because there's something i can tell you that you can't tell yourself that easy farming you might be able to know when your plant's done and everything but there's a little bit of a of, of a of a connection i can give you to tell you you know hey you're really hitting it when when we harvest like right here you know you're really getting on point or, or you harvesting a couple of days early or you've harvested a couple of days late and it's really hard for him to get 
or her to get that evidence given to them that it's that concrete. And I can give you pretty concrete evidence on it. And, and I've been pretty fortunate to where my farmer, who's my father-in-law, he, he does that just right. He's got like that window down and there's so many factors that he looks at and he does look at tray cones. And, and I, I've talked about this before with him, but it, like I said, is with he, he's using so much in his brain of knowledge he's packed in from 30 years of growing that, that trichomes couldn't help him understand because he knows that genetic and that strain and how it does and how it's done when it's dry. And he knows what his, his buds should look like when they're done. And so there's so much going on. That's why a Frenchie would always say the farmer is the key part to this and finding a good farmer that knows all this. This is something I can't just tell you how to do or what to do or any of that. It's the farmer needs to know. He's one with his plant. He looks at it every day. He knows how to do this and it takes just experience. Absolutely, man. Rosabella, you unmuted your mic a couple of times. Do you, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I wanted to agree on that there and that there is that window important. And, and, and if you, you can tell them, you can tell them that it comes to, it comes to traditional dish because it will, like I said, it either make it or it will, or it will butter instead of uh, dissolve. Um, so I agree with that. I agree with that. There's a window where it's very important to keep an eye on those decisions and when in harvest or you kind of list the, the life of the hash. Absolutely. I want to ask RJ and then wax plug. You know, you're dealing with all different types of materials. Are you seeing correlations between older material and older resin and, and it coming through uh, a certain a certain way compared to resin in that sweet spot? You're muted, but you don't show as muted. Mm -hmm. You're muted, then unmuted. No, I'm going to switch it over to wax plug. RJ's going to jump out and jump back in. But yeah, same question to you, wax plug. So, um, the older stuff, I mean, it always comes with more pigment for sure. The, I mean, but can you help me understand like more? What, what is it that you're. So my question, so my question is, is that bird is correlating, uh, when he's looking at, at material and, and recognizing it to be through his, his experience, eyes of experience, either premature, right, right in that sweet spot or mature, he's recognizing correlations between the outcomes of his products. And I wanted to know if you were, you were doing yeah. the same. Yeah, we do do the same thing. So we look at the biomass and we kind of look like, says, does it look like all degraded? Does it look secured, you know, and then the, we have the fresh frozen. And then we look at the, the leaf structure. So it's like, uh, a big family that's going to tell us there's more fat to it if it's uh the dark green or the lighter greens that kind of tells us i still here the call come in can you guys hear me cool well can't hear you guys no more but like i was saying the that looking at the biomass, we can tell from that, like, okay, what adsorbents am I going to use? And just from, like, uh, Bird was saying, from doing this so many times, I kind of start tying in all these little things together, and that's how I kind of go off the knowledge. So the UV lighting will kind of be uh, correlated to the 
biomass quality. So like the older uh, biomass tends to have more of the color bands as opposed to the fresher stuff. It has less pigments in it. So and it goes to that, like if it's the fruit, you know, so it's how ripe is it, how mature is it? So if it's already developed this or if it hasn't. And that's just kind of how we go based off of our extractions. It's just, you know, based off the biomass, we kind of get an idea of where to start. So when you were saying the older stuff, did you mean like the harvest date was a lot like it's been sitting on a shelf for a while or are we talking about uh, the ripeness of when it was harvested? So like the the first thing I'll do is like I'll, I'll grab a little bunch and squish it. And if it's crispy, I know it's dry. It's been stored somewhere hot. So it's probably been decarved a lot. The second thing is I'll, I'll get a whiff of it. And then that kind of tells me if there's good terpenes in there, it's, it's a good product. You know, I know I can refine it and get it pretty good, but if it smells rancid already, there's too many, uh, like pro oxidants in there already. So that's where I'll do extra steps to remove, say that oxidizing layer to slow down that whole oxidation rate and stabilize the overall product more. And then, uh. The third thing is just visually, you know, so like if you, you can see the browns and the carotenoids already starting to show the chlorophyll has already been degraded. So based off those three things, I can kind of get an idea already. Like, okay, this is where I'm going to start. And then the amount of trichomes too, if it's like really just fan leaf and stems, or is it like really spongy, like oily, uh, biomass. RJ, what's your experience? Can you hear me now? Yep. Okay. So, uh, we typically see, uh, a different array of materials, some, uh, very fresh and then some, uh, very old, maybe not very old, but on the definite older side. So definite deep in the color band. Um, so we have a lot of reds, lots of the deep ambers, you know what I mean? Borderline browns. Um, and there's just a lot of that to wade through, I'll say, um, very thick in those compounds, um, with the older the material gets. So I have to do a lot of remediation kind of in that sense and pulling those colors back, um, to create still, you know, a nice golden, beautiful hue. I'm not trying to, to take that out, but I'm trying to, again, like take out that kind of deep oxidized layer to pull the actual flavor whatever's left of it forward to make it palatable, you know? Absolutely. Kind of wanted to ask you the same question. Um, you know, are you looking at the abscission, uh, neck of the gland and, and do you think that that has as much bearing on a, a solvent based ex extraction or, or do you think that it, it, there's a it's a little more forgiving in, in, in the way that you're, you're creating material? Um, yeah, I think it was interesting. I mean, uh, bird, I think said it, it's a secondary plant metabolite, right? The plant's trying to produce seeds and pollen, right? That's, that's what it's trying to do. And then it's, it's not trying to grow trichromes to maximum development. It's doing whatever that <laughs> metabolic pathway is and, and it's to our benefit and that's great. Um, but the plant is trying to produce seeds and pollen. So I think even if it were trying to produce trichrome heads, right? Like a tomato doesn't ripen all its tomatoes at once. Right. Um, so I think, you know, we are dealing with this. There's no probably ideal precise time. And that probably changes a little bit. Um, 
Um, and, you know, I think even perhaps stresses in the grow can cause some of these, whether it's darkening of this disc, which I would agree with, with, um, you know, all those points made about that, that the, the ambering is likely the refraction of just the darkening, the, the, the death of those cells as it were, you know? Um, and the, yeah, I would say specifically even more so with hash making like water hash or sifting that, yeah, you need that to break off. Um, whether that attachment is waterproof or not, I would say that it's probably not. It was passing, uh, oil and, and different, you know, metabolic, you know, uh, secretions through it and whatnot. So whether it is or isn't, I don't, I don't know, but my, my intuition tells me is that it, that it might not be, um, but okay. So in terms of our harvest, I kind of think about it different. I think about it teaming up with Rick, you know, I look at it going, uh, okay. I, yield. I, 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 you know, I harvested this light, this, this one plant, this four plants, this, this 400 plants, whatever we're talking about. And when we harvested it at such and such a condition, I got X, Y, Z grams per pound of oil. That oil contained what, what makeup of terpenes and cannabinoids. And so I would define it as when do I have that optimal ratio that I'm looking for? And when do I have the most of it? Um, and other than that, I don't, I wouldn't really care, no, about that obsession or the color or whatever. It would strictly come down to what, when those data points were met. So that would change, yeah, for, by different strains, by different cultivation methods. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of, of doing this style of extraction is we're not as handcuffed to that relationship with that abstention and, and then that ability for it to break off and the stalks to not break off, right? And for those stalks to be of a different diameter than the head so that we can able to filter them out. Um you know, using screens or whatever. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, I think we're talking about resin, you know, and that relationship of, of somebody mentioned it earlier, call it 10% amber. You know, I, I kind of literally referenced that same number a few weeks ago in, in, in a discussion where I said, look, for me, it's generally around 10% amber and around 80% nice and milky and maybe 10% of those are still, uh, nice and clear, you know? Um, but yeah, I think we need to keep in mind that the plant is not ripening those for the point of some harvest It's trying to grow seeds and pollen. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Chandy, you've spent, you know, some intimate time harvesting plants and doing some really cool live processing. I'd love to get your input on, on all this and, and what your opinion is. Oh, I, I kind of got sidetracked with, with the many topics that we've been going. Um, if you can give me a, a, a direct question. No worries. What, so when we're, when we're, when we're looking at the resin and, and the overall plant, what are you assessing, uh, to determine viability and, 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 and readiness to harvest? Are you looking for amber or are you looking for a, a, a pinch of abscission to become clear on the gland is. Or is there something else in the plant that's telling you it's ready? So originally I would uh, use a loop and uh, try to see the ratios of 
of colors per resin head, but I found out the better tech was to connect more with the grower. And my indication would be basically how would the grower describe his flower when he smokes it as flower. Um, I don't have that much of a palette for flower and I have not spent enough time to assess quality that way. Uh, one of the best way just to assess what kind of hash am I going to end up with would come from smoking the flower and usually the grower would be my answer to that. And that wouldn't happen from the get go. It would require at least a year of, uh, a constant relationship of me, um, sieving, uh, introducing the hash to the grower, comparing it to the flower. And from there is where we usually, uh, uh, assess the timing, mostly with growers that have the same, um, strains over and over again. Uh, it's an unconventional method, but I put a, a lot of trust on the grower to determine, um, I give him few inputs and we work it that way. Right on. That's, that's awesome. Tom, is, is that something that you're utilizing or is that something that's, that's newer to you when, when Adam introduced that? that that process uh yeah it was newer for me learning about you know the abscission and everything um it's definitely something i take into account and something i'm looking at awesome awesome man well i mean i i think that kind of wraps it up guys i really appreciate everyone's taking the time out of their day um to kind of come on and and, and talk about color and, and and i just want to open it up to everybody and, and anybody in the comments, you know, got a lot of people in the room and maybe there's a lot of people more fast. If there's any comments, uh, you know, we welcome them or questions. I haven't, uh, I haven't even looked at the, uh, the comments myself, but. Yeah. I just want to say thanks everyone for, for taking the time. This has been something we kind of put together and been wanting to put together for a little bit and really means a lot uh, for you guys to come and, and join the discussion. And I think we covered a lot of ground and had a great, a great chat. So really appreciate everyone. And thanks everyone for tuning in and joining us because uh, it doesn't happen without you guys. So appreciate Absolutely. everyone. Yeah, man. Thanks everybody. Thanks for taking the time. We're going to wrap it up now and, and, and we'll definitely, you know, love to have you all back for another one of these. We, I think it's constructive and, and we've got some stuff geared up. I, I know I learned stuff, so. I appreciate everybody's not taking the time. And uh, until next time, thanks so much. Don't forget to snatch that like button. Thanks for having us. us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs>